0: July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym, TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery.
1: Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles and watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research and I know there's so much more to the story that's never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder, Pat Thresher, for many years, and so when Rick asked me to help him bring the -the behind-the-scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years there have been 12 tiger expeditions to the South Pacific and we've organized the podcast into 12 seasons. The Episodes in season 1 tell the story of the first trip in 1989, season 2 deals with the next expedition in 1991 and so on. To follow the progress of the investigation you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with these stories so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season.
2: And this is a compilation of the five episodes in Season 4, The 1997 Expedition.
1: Hi, Rick. last time we talked, you had just come back from a secret expedition that didn't quite turn out the way you had thought.
2: Well, that expedition had not gone the way we thought it was going to. We hoped that we would be able to find this tank that a Coast Guard veteran had told us about that was supposed to be, or we hoped it was, a a fuel tank for the Earhart Electra. And if it turned out that that's what it was, that would mean the airplane was right there in the water off that part of the reef. And we didn't want that information to get out until we were ready to go back to do a recovery, you know, for reasons of security sure. for the artifacts, we'd have to keep that quiet. So we did this expedition quietly, a black operation. <laughs> but we, we we did find the tank, but it wasn't an electrofuel tank, uh-huh. and it was just a, a steel water collection tank from the abandoned village. Uh, apparently, nothing to do with Earhart. That was kind of a bust, but we did uh, recover a couple of artifacts from the abandoned village that were really interesting. Um, A little piece of plexiglass found in the abandoned village that matched the curvature, thickness, material, color, every aspect of Lockheed part number 40332 or whatever the number is. It was the the cabin windows from Lockheed Electra. Which we could prove that that's what it was, but it looked like it very well might be. And we found a couple of uh, radio cable connectors that were from the right era. And hmm. Hard to explain. So we had a couple of, of good artifacts from that trip. But the basic uh, reason for the trip, this, this tank thing, uh, turned out to be a big disappointment. Darn. So we get back in the early spring of 1996. And we're ready to proceed with the planning for the uh, NICU 3 expedition, the one we'd been planning for right. some time.
1: And not secret.
2: Not secret, very public. And it was planned for that coming year, 1997, which would mark the 60th anniversary of Earhart's disappearance. And the hundredth anniversary of her birth, uh-huh. and if there was ever a time to solve the mystery, you know, as we said on all our, uh, well, our publicity, once and for all, we're we're gonna we're gonna solve this. This was the year to do it, and we made this big commitment to mount uh, a big expedition and assemble the logistics and the team and the technology and the media coverage and, of course, the funding. Mm. We had two project supporters who had made pledges totaling nearly $200,000, which good start. gave us an excellent start toward putting together the estimated million dollar budget for the major operation for the next the, the fall of 97 right. that, that we were planning on. And, and we, we told everybody about this, so we're gonna do this, we put a lot of publicity, all this great evidence. So in May of 96, I get a call from NOVA, the television series, ah. the science series, WGBH Boston, public television, very well-respected, major documentary. And they said, we, um, we might be interested in doing a show about the Earhart mystery and feature your work in it. And wow. we understand you're planning on doing an expedition next year, and we'd want to come along oh. and, and shoot video for that. So, we want to talk about that. Uh, can you come up to Boston and, and uh, we'll discuss it? So, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, we, uh, we go on up to Boston and we have a meeting with all the production people at, at NOVA. And they said, well, the first thing we're going to have to do is uh, an investigation of our own to see if your evidence is good, if your evidence meets our high standards before we're going to commit to doing a show with you. We're going to take three months to work. We're going to do this the whole summer, June, July, August. We're going to really dig into this and we'll need your full cooperation. But if at the end of that time, we decide that you, you really have the goods on this, we will enter into a contract with you. Now understand, we're not going to pay anything for the exclusive rights. We don't do that. But we will pay our pro rata share of the expedition costs and we'll give you a share of the videotape sales afterward because we're going to make a videotape of this show hmm. after it airs and it'll be a popular show. And And we figured that... What they were proposing would net us probably fifty thousand dollars. They also said they they wanted to cover the expedition live on their internet website, which is like a new thing oh, wow. in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, we're talking, and we weren't yeah. at all comfortable with that idea. Hmm. We said, I we don't like that uh, because you're you're going to be uh, w- there's no way we can keep anything. Secret we we can't control the release of information if it's all being broadcast live on your website Right. But these are all things that you can work out in a, in a contract. We don't need to worry about that yet That's the way we left it. They were definitely interested in looking into the possibility of maybe doing a show about us wow.
1: How did that go well
2: for the next? three months, I felt like I'd been nominated for a seat on the Supreme Court. Oh, jeez. Constant grillings about evidence and sources, and they rounded up critics to debate me, and they set up these conference phone calls, and I'd go back and forth with somebody who thought we were full of beans, and and they would uh, would participate in all that. I had to defend every aspect of everything we'd ever said and uh, we did that because god you know if, if
1: i mean what an opportunity if well it yeah a,
2: we're gonna have a show on nova i mean that's yeah. that's top drawer man <laughs> so in august i get a letter from the the boss at uh, wgbh nova saying that, um yeah we're gonna go ahead with this we really like what you've done yeah. and i'm i'll immediately have our legal department Send a contract that we can look at and uh, negotiate. And cool. Get that. Get that going. Okay. Looks like yeah. This this well, is this is looking good, seconds, man. Yeah. Uh, we got to have a ship though, and we did not yet have a ship. We needed. We we investigated eleven possible ships huh. that we could use. And nothing suitable was available for our desired September October ninety seven time period.
3: Hmm.
2: November looked like a possibility, but then Nova decided that they would prefer that the expedition happen early in nineteen ninety seven.
1: Oh, am oh
2: I? Well, I'm not sure why they thought that, but that's that's when they was wanted it to do it.
1: Programming thing.
2: Yeah, I guess. But we we're a bit concerned because we knew that that time period is in the central pacific's cyclone season it's like hurricane season right right. now we had been out there the previous year for the 1996 trip in february so we're talking roughly the same time period we didn't have any problem
1: but you had how many of you were there then Uh, oh like
2: there were seven of us on that yeah, trip a small and and this and we were only short there for time yeah yeah we were a very short time just yeah, a couple is, three days on the island
1: this would be way different exposure
2: this would be way different on the other hand nicomoraro is in kind of a benign weather area the the big cyclones rarely hit there directly so we thought ah, okay it's you know, not we'll,
1: that comforting <clears throat> we'll, we'll probably get...
2: be okay so With things going so well, we have NOVA on board, which we figured is going to really help with the fundraising. Yes. We decided to use the 223-foot University of Hawaii Oceanographic Research Vessel. Its full name is Kaimika (laughs) Okanaloa, which for (laughs) understandable reasons is usually simply known as K-O-K. Great ship. And we're going to have a 46-day expedition that would give us a full month on the island. Wow. And we'd, of course, be staging out of Honolulu, where the ship is based. But we're going to need all of that projected million-dollar budget. This is going to be a very expensive expedition. Nova also insisted that we provide some way for them to get aerial views of the island, aerial video of the island. Oh my, well, this is before drones. This is way before drones. We'd experimented a little bit with kite aerial photography.
3: Hmm.
2: But although you can get some good still shots from kites, video yeah, from kites to. is a, a great way to make yourself airsick just watching it. <laughs> so it meant equipping the expedition with an ultralight aircraft on wow. floats. Oh. Wow, that's a major expense and a major complication. But two of our team members uh, were familiar with ultralights and said, yeah, we can, we can do that. We, we can get ourselves really? a, an ultralight and uh, put it on floats. And yeah, we can do that. All right. Good. So we're going to have an airplane. Wow. By the September of 1996 Tiger Tracks, we thought we had everything set. I mean, this is once and for all, man. Niku 3. It's going to be a 20-person team. There's going to be a Nova film crew. And we're going to depart Honolulu in late January aboard KOK. And we're going to do a survey of the abandoned village, detailed archaeological survey of the village. We're going to do a lagoon search using electromagnetic sensors on a, a small launch. And it was going to be guided by GPS to get absolutely accurate transects. And, of course, we're going to do an aerial survey and video of the island from the ultralight aircraft. And then we're going to go to that site where we found the shoes. Right. And we're going to do a detailed archaeological excavation there and see what more we can find. Hmm. So big plans. The next month in October, in October of 96, we went to the Alcoa aluminum uh, plant in uh, near near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, hmm. for their engineers to do an analysis of our piece of airplane skin, Artifact 22V1, that we uh-huh. thought was probably from the Earhart aircraft. And Nova came along and filmed that. And they had their oh, cameras yeah. there and, and so forth. Now, we still didn't have a contract with no one. Oh. They were They were supposed to get us something as soon as they made the decision to go ahead with it. Right. But there was a eh, we'll get to it, we'll get to it, but we want to get this filming done. We want to get this filming done. So we're moving forward. The, the analysis of 22v1 went really well. They cut some huge chunks out of it hmm. and tested them but came back and said yeah it's the right kind of aluminum it's uh, just what you would expect from the earhart right time period right time period uh, elements in the alloy in the aluminum it makes up what was called at that time 24 st l clad now it's called 2024 but still l-clad was right the the formula was right this all looks good it's the right kind of rivet so Everybody's happy,
1: you know, yeah, they're moving I mean, that's forward. Exciting.
2: And then both of our financial supporters backed out of their oh, pledges.
1: No. Really? <laughs>
2: yeah, um, there were no hard feelings, but there was no money from them. Oh, no. So we turned to the Tiger membership and said, hey, look, we have a little setback here, but we need to keep looking for major funding, so help us keep going here. And they kicked in and made contributions and they made it possible for us to continue to look for major funding. But we were coming up empty. I mean, we did dozens of proposals to corporations and foundations and same response. Nope, we can't do that. Now, getting in-kind support from technology companies Proved to be pretty easy. Oh, we'll let you use our equipment. You can borrow this and you can use this, right. like our electromagnetic gear and metal detectors and sure, stuff. That was that, that was fine.
1: Still, that doesn't but get you there. You gotta have the cash. Yeah. And
2: without funding, there's not going to be an expedition. So here we are. You know, by mid January oh, of '97, the situation is desperate. Really. Our,
1: what was your proposed? Date to leave? Well,
2: it it had moved to uh, late February, but still. But but we're mid January. We've got if if we're gonna do and any of you this, we didn't have the boat. We didn't have a boat. We didn't. And
1: so that we had, you had the boat in mind, but no money on it. Is yeah,
2: I mean, it, yeah. but they wanted their first payment <laughs> sure. coming up. I mean, yeah. that they, they can't just hold it forever. And we felt like our credibility as an organization rested on our promise to do this expedition. Sure. But there was no money to do it with. On top of that, after six months of work and assurances, there's still no contract from Nova.
1: What are they saying? Well... I mean, are they still positive about it?
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, they're just, uh, just, you know, be patient. We'll get to it. And I said, look, guys, we, we, we've got to have a contract. But with with the, our sponsors backing out and with nobody stepping up, using KOK was out of the question now. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no way we can afford a ship that big. Hmm. We had to literally at the last minute reinvent the expedition.
1: Oh my, after all that planning. After
2: all that, we had to find a more economical ship. We had to shorten the length of the charter, uh, reduce the size of the team. Now, through our connection with the captain of the ship we had used on the 1996 trip, Carol Dunlap, we connected with American expat, Rob Barrell, and he and his sister Alex owned Naya, which uh. is uh, it's Hawaiian for dolphin. Um. But Naya was a 120 foot motor sailor that did live aboard scuba diving tours around the Fiji islands. And Naya could accommodate 18 passengers in comfortable air-conditioned cabins. Got to have air conditioning. Yes. As we learned, (laughs) it was suitable for open ocean work. It had a water maker. It could carry enough fuel and provisions to handle the 1,000-mile-each-way trip from Fiji to Nicomararo. Wow. Now, Rob had an opening in their schedule. They are very tightly booked, but he had an opening in the schedule. In late February, early March, '97. It's perfect. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, by reducing the projected stay at the island from one month to two weeks, hmm. and by changing to a smaller, more economical, economical ship, we were able to get the expedition cash budget down to two hundred thousand dollars. But still, may as well have been two billion. Yeah. So I told Noah, we gotta have a contract. And we've got to have your pro rata share of the expedition costs. I've got a boat payment to me. Sure. Or we're not going to have a boat. So they finally set a contract. But it was very different than what we had talked about oh, the no. previous summer. There was no videotape share. And they insisted on having this live coverage on their website, which wow. we really didn't like. And without the videotape share, the real money wasn't there.
3: Really?
2: And so we we told him, I said, Look, your proposed contract is not what we agreed to and it is not acceptable. Mm, Okay, so we're in kind of a tense place with with Nova. Yeah, really. Well, then. Had he
1: advertised already that they were going to be part of it? Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. So nobody quite knew what was going to happen. Now, in a triumph of generosity over judgment a member of our board of directors offered to loan the organization a hundred thousand dollars okay um suddenly we're halfway home to our new two hundred thousand dollar budget but we still had to find the other half well earlier abc news had contacted me and expressed interest in this project and going on the expedition And we had explained that, well, we're trying to conclude a contract with NOVA. You know, we're already talking to NOVA. And now with the situation critical and the negotiations with NOVA kind of deadlocked, Mm. we told NOVA that we're opening the door to other possible offers. And ABC offered to pay a $50,000 rights fee Uh. and share the footage that they got with NOVA. But Nova Nova rejected that idea. They said, no, 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 we're not going to share our footage with anybody. We're not going to do that because uh, a network like ABC can get a show on the air a lot faster than we can. And if they air something before we do, nobody's going to watch our show. Well, then ABC said, if they don't want to do that, we'll partner with the Discovery Channel. We've talked to them. Ah. And they're interested in producing a show, too. So we'd partner with them. Would There'd be two one-hour documentaries, an ABC show on our network's Turning Point series, mm-hmm. and the other would be a one-hour show on the Discovery Channel as a special. Wow. And each network would put up
1: $50,000. That's a good solution. <laughs> Wait a
2: minute. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me that ABC and Discovery are... Offering a hundred thousand dollars, that's the other half of our budget. After we have the hundred thousand from loan from the board member, yeah. now we've got an expedition. We can move forward with this yes. with Naya, and,
1: and we're and good. With terms that I, you like.
2: I went to New York and I met with ABC, and I said, "Look, we're going to need a contract." And they said, "Sure, here." <laughs> you know, <laughs> boom. You know, it was that quick. Huge sigh of relief. And we Seriously? move into high gear. I told Nova, hey, sorry guys, uh, we had a better offer and uh, we're going to go ahead with ABC and Discovery. Well, they said, we'll match their price and we'll, we'll drop, drop the uh, live coverage demand.
1: Yeah, I don't think so.
2: I said, no, I won't go back on my word. Th- these people have made a good faith offer. There's, there's paper on this. Nova said, hey, you do it with us or we'll sue you for breach of contract. Uh, Really? (laughs) I said, what contract? You guys never came up with an acceptable contract. They said, no, we have a verbal contract with you. I said, there's no such thing as a verbal contract.
1: (laughs) Show me the signature.
2: (laughs) Do whatever you need to do, but we're going ahead with this expedition. So the next thing that happens is the sheriff shows up at the door oh, no! with a lawsuit, <laughs> Nova suing, suing tiger and me personally for over a hundred oh, thousand dollars. So what they're doing silly. is they're trying to stop the expedition. Yeah. So we, we got a continuance and we went ahead and we did the expedition with ABC and we fought the case. And after nine months and $8,000 in legal fees, nova dropped the case now the story for why they dropped the case is precious their contention was that we had a verbal contract with them well at the same time this is going on there's another historic aviation recovery project underway there was a b-29 called keybird that had been landed on a frozen lake in Greenland back in the early 1950s and was still sitting there in very good condition. And uh, an air racing champion pilot named Daryl Grinemeyer announced that he was going to go up there, hang new engines on the B-29 and fly it out. (laughs) He had a, a friend of his who was a filmmaker and his filmmaker was gonna film all this. The filmmaker went to Nova and said, hey, I'm gonna film my buddy Daryl Grenemeyer flying this B-29 off the ice in Greenland. He's gonna hang new engines, it's gonna be a great show. Would you be interested in doing that, in airing the the film I shoot? And Nova said, well, let us think about that. So Nova calls up Grenemeyer and says, hey, we're interested in your project, but we don't need this other guy. We'll, <laughs> we'll work with you directly. Oh, my God. And so they cut a deal with Grenemeyer.
1: And he agreed to it? I and he
2: agreed to it.
1: Friend.
2: And, of course, the filmmaker friend said, hey, Nova, <laughs> we had a verbal agreement that you were going to work with me. And Nova says, no, there's no such thing as a verbal
1: agreement. Oh, jeez.
2: verbal contract.
1: So who knew that? Like, who found that out so that... Oh, wait,
2: well, I I found out, out all this later oh. after after things had, had all shaken down. Oh, jeez. But what happened was Nova's attorneys said, look...
1: Pick you, one way or the other.
2: You can't have it both ways. You know, you've you got two lawsuits going on here, and the easy you got to get rid of one of them, and the easiest one to get rid of is the one where you're the plaintiff.
1: Yeah.
2: So ABC agreed to pay Nova like it was like $30,000 oh. for their expense in doing the filming at Alcoa that they did. So that they had oh. some compensation for the time they spent. And Nova agreed to drop the suit with Tiger. Oh. And that was the end of that. But good grief, yeah. you know, the whole thing. So on February 20th, 1997, the Tiger team boarded a Air Pacific 747 bound for Fiji and Los Angeles. And we were we were off on uh, on NICU Three now. Uh, <laughs> I had mentioned that our captain on the 1996 trip um, with, aboard Matangi Princess was Carol Dunlop, and Carol Dunlop's husband, the name's Dunlop. They're Scottish.
1: Of course. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it
2: turns out he was a piper, oh. and he had a, a friend that also was also a bagpiper. Now, my wife Pat and I are both ethnic. Scots. <laughs> and it is a long tradition that when Scots sail off to do great things, they're piped out. You know, in World War I and World War II, there are always oh, pipers. Way before that. Probably. Oh, and, and way before yeah. that, probably for the Crimean yes. War. <laughs> and said, so here's an opportunity. We're going to be piped out of the harbor. And on February 22nd, we had pipers on the dock
1: that was so fun you no know,
2: it was it was very cool our hopes were so high for that trip you know, we had beaten every obstacle put in our way and it it, it had seemed impossible and yet here we were we we're on our way out as as we sailed out of the harbor there in, in fiji this was the fourth time the tiger flag flew from the masthead of oh, a ship <laughs> bound for Nicaragua. As we left the harbor, we passed the rusting hulk of Pacific Nomad, the old, the ship that we had used on the 18. 18- oh, really? 18-
1: yeah. Oh, darn.
2: Yeah, it was it had been nine years, and she had been retired and just kind of parked oh. out in the harbor, and we we went right past her Aww. no longer proud and fit you know she was right. just a rusty hulk I, I wrote later you know as i said as we slipped by with our graying hair and our reading glasses okay. we sh- she whispered to us of time of mortality and the false god glory <laughs> <laughs> oh god um. so there we were we had no idea what we were in for. Oh no. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> but so, that's a tale for the next time.
1: Well, we'll look forward to hearing about that. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> okay. Hi, Rick. At the end of our last episode, it was February 22nd, 1997, and the team for Nuku Three was setting out f- from Fiji for the thousand-mile voyage to Nikumaroro. Aboard the motor sailor Naya. Tell us what a motor sailor is.
2: Well, a motor sailor is powered by a motor. In this case, diesel. uh, But it also has a sail. Now, a Naya is 120 feet long, 30 feet wide. It's powered by a diesel. But it has a deep keel and a fairly large sail and jib that you put up when the wind is within limits of what makes sense. And what that really does is add stability to the ship as it moves through the water. With a sail, it just creates the illusion that the boat has a lot more mass than it it really does. And it gives you a little more speed and it also saves on the amount of fuel that that you're using but the main thing it does is give you a much better ride Ah. because as we found out with the smaller ship that was just uh engine powered if the ship is is too short out in the pacific you're going up one hill and down the next naya -Naya, much better ride now (laughs) she can heel over pretty well and and roll And so you've got to be aware of that. Um, You know, there's the old saying that you have one hand for yourself and one hand for the boat. You always have your hand on something. Because if she rolls up, you're going to go with the roll. And um, (laughs) you can go tap dancing across the deck and you end up on the floor. And people get hurt. You have to to be careful.
1: So did they tack? Like a sailboat, or did they just launch ahead and?
2: You don't have to tack and wear like a sailboat. You can just maintain a straight course, but you've got that sail to to, give you more stability. Hmm. Fourteen crew members, accommodations for eighteen passengers in nine cabins, air conditioned. It's very very comfortable boat basically set up as a live-aboard scuba dive boat operating in the waters around the Fiji Islands, uh, all set up to accommodate scuba divers. They got compressors, tanks, weights, all the things we need for underwater operations we were gonna do. Right. but
1: Plus accessibility for the rest of what you were doing.
2: That's right. There's a dive deck on the, on the stern that's down close to the water, right? So uh, you you can use that to get in and out of the launches. Now she had two; they're called ribs, rigid-hulled inflatables, uh, powered with 60 horsepower outboards. They're they're called niads. She she had two of those. They're they're great for work at Nicomararo because the the rigid aluminum hull is protection against the, the coral that you you are going to bump into as you go ashore up up the landing the blasted landing channel mm-hmm. but you've got inflated sides so when you're getting in and out you're you're not banging yourself up on hard metal on on, right. on hard metal that worked out well and plus we had another lagoon boat that we we're going to use for uh, work in the lagoon hmm. The ship has a great open salon on the main deck for basically a dining room, but it's also great for meetings. We would always hold our team meetings in the salon every every evening, planning what we were going to do the next day, reviewing what we did this day and so forth. Hmm. Excellent ship. Uh, It's just perfect for the the kind of work we were doing. Our problem in 1997 is we were going out at the wrong time of year we had gone out in the winter before the winter in the northern hemisphere and gotten away with it
1: so are you saying you got lucky
2: we were lucky well i don't know if we got lucky on earlier trips or just we got really unlucky on this trip (laughs) oh no (laughs) but um it was a rough passage going out a lot of people were seasick but that's not unusual. We, we often have a pretty rough passage mm-hmm. going up from Fiji to, to Niku. And
1: how many days is that it, It's five days. Oh, you're that's you're nice out there five days. Somebody who gets seasick. But
2: in this case, while we were en route, on our way up to Niku, a tropical depression formed behind us, oh. and it grew into a storm and, and eventually matured <laughs> into a full-blown cyclone. Uh, out in the Pacific, in, in the Southern Pacific, they call them uh, tropical cyclones. In the Northern Pacific, they're typhoons. In uh-huh. the Atlantic, they're hurricanes. It's the, same, the same animal. Storm. It's oh. the same creature. Wow. Now, this, this particular tropical cyclone that they named Gavin, Tropical Cyclone Gavin, it was far away from where we were, but it was big, and it, it stirs things up and it generated big swells wow. that did make their way to Nicomararo. And the problem was those swells, when something like that happened, those swells come in from the Northwest. Now, normally at Nicomararo, the seas hit you from the Southeast. Oh, so... And so they, they hit that Southeastern or, or that, that Eastern side of the island so the landing channel that's really the only way to get ashore that was blasted through the reef back when they abandoned the island in 1963, that channel is normally on the leeward side of the island. It's, oh, it's, but not this time. It's usually protected. Boy, not this time. Wow. This time it's, it's taken the full brunt of all this stuff coming in. We got there, we are horrified. <laughs> we, we look at that landing channel and that water's running across the reef and hitting that blasted channel and creating a geyser 20, 30 feet in the air. Oh, my God. I said, oh, and we're, this is like going ashore in a washing machine. You know, it, it's just, it's horrible. For the next two weeks, I mean, just... Just getting people and equipment on and off the island was like a daily near-death experience.
3: Wow,
1: did for... it last that long?
2: Well, especially for the first part we were there, it was yeah. really bad. I mean, okay, so we we had this um, ABC News crew aboard, three guys.
1: Oh, jeez, yeah. and equipment.
2: And okay. all their stuff. Yeah. The producer, Howie Masters, great guy was in charge of the whole filming operation. And of course, Rob's in charge of the boat and I'm in charge of the expedition. And every morning, Rob and Howie and I would get up on the de- the, the bridge at Naya with binoculars and we'd look at that friggin' channel. <laughs> and we said, well, how bad is it today? Who can we put ashore? And we're having conversations like, well, so-and-so still got kids living at home. So we're not gonna- Oh, no, really? We- yeah, we're making decisions based on stuff like that. Oh jeez! You know, and I'm thinking I didn't sign on for something like this. Really? But you know, we we've got to get the work done. But we don't want to kill anybody. Of course, I knew one person that was going to go ashore. There's <laughs> a <laughs> question about that. Um, so you, you get the people into the skiff that you decide are okay to go, and then Rob's at the helm, and he's. He goes just outside the channel, and he starts circling. And you've got these big rollers coming in, and they're going up the channel, and kaboom, and it goes in the air. And he's circling, and he's circling. He's waiting for just the right wave right, to catch. Right, kind of like body surfing. It's like surfing. <sighs> and and you're, always, you're kind of second-guessing him. Come on, Rob this is the one. He said, no, 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 not this one. I know what I'm doing. And he did, man. he really knew wow. and and he'd pick a, a wave and in you'd go now, holy moly, and up the and up onto the beach you'd crash like onto the,
1: you on the beach?
2: you go right up on the beach <laughs> and smash it. and then you' pile out like the Marines, you know. Yeah. Then we'd push him back out, get him turned around. Now he's got to get back out there. He's empty now. And these waves are rolling in and you wait and you wait for the right one. He says, okay, now. And he'd gun it and he'd go out. The real danger is when these things really get going, there's so much foam that the prop on the outboard won't bite. And he's got to have a... Right to to maintain direction, and if that skiff gets crosswise and broaches, it rolls over, and it's all over. That's the thing. Did he
1: enjoy it? Was did he? None of us enjoyed it. No, no. no, you you
2: look back on it, you know, and it's an adventure, you know. (laughs) But at the time, you're just scared and worried and just doing your job. We didn't wear life jackets. And people would why? think, why the hell would you not wear a life jacket? Because you if you're in that, if you get dumped, if, if that boat rolls and you get dumped into the water in that channel with all the coral, if you've got a life jacket on, you're going to get bounced around like a cork and you're going to get thrown into the walls of that channel and you're going to get torn up. Wow. And there are sharks in there that are just waiting for something like that to happen. Mm. So you have to be able if you're dumped in the water, to duck under as a wave goes over you. Oh,
1: interesting. It's the only
2: way you can protect yeah. yourself. So yeah. you do this without life jackets. Ooh. Yeah. So there we were. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Getting people ashore as best we could. Using the ultralight airplane that we had lashed to the top deck. was out of that question. There's really? no way under those conditions. The sea was really rough. The wind's blowing like yeah, crazy. That's There's no cool. way we we're going to use that airplane. Darn. it never left the ship the whole expedition <laughs> it, it kind of got banged up of oh. course just by natural forces but we did get people ashore and we we did get the work started in the abandoned village we did a, a search and a survey of course we're getting rained on just about every just torrential rain
1: how did the rains happen there did they were they all day or were they off and on? Oh, they'd be squalls
2: that would come yeah. through. Hmm. Yeah, not usually all day, wow. but enough to just keep you soaked. Really? And of course, it's wet. Wash away your... It's hot and humid. And hmm. It was just miserable. But we did get the work done. We collected, teeth, like over a hundred artifacts.
1: Did you have that area gridded like you...
2: No, you no, we, we didn't actually grid it. We, we searched it in sections uh, with metal detectors and just eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Our archaeologist insisted on collecting a whole bunch of stuff that clearly had nothing to do with an airplane or, or Amelia Earhart, but he wanted to have examples of things, natural junk left behind in this village to establish context. Uh, huh. I've still got that stuff <laughs> because <laughs> anything we collected we have to, to curate, and we just hold it in stewardship for the Republic of Kiribati. That's the deal. We don't yeah. own it, right. but if we collect it, we have to keep it and protect it and catalog it. And it's <laughs> a pain in the butt, but we've got it. You do okay. So we collected a whole bunch of stuff. We we still didn't know where the plane landed. We knew it landed somewhere and got. Washed into some place where we couldn't find it. We had had different theories about where it might have landed on the reef and gone into the ocean. But we had done a a sonar survey around the whole island in 1991 and didn't find any airplane. And we'd had divers in the water and they didn't find any airplane. So we thought, well, maybe it's in the lagoon. There's a place down by the Southern Lagoon Passage that is not grown over with vegetation it it's an area where you could possibly get an airplane down but you might not get stopped in time and we thought well maybe they tried to land here and overshot and went into the lagoon and maybe, maybe it's out there uh-huh. in the lagoon so how do we find it well okay the lagoon is very murky hmm. uh, you, Sandy you can't
1: bottom Hmm? Is it a sandy bottle? It's a silty bottle. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it could have sunk.
2: Any disturbance, it, it just likes like milk. Yeah, you, know? you can't see your hand in front of your face. We thought, well, okay, we'll use an electromagnetic sensor, hmm. and we had a very fancy, high-powered electromagnetic sensor mounted on a launch, a boat, the thing sticking way out to the side, ah. and we did transects. Up and down the area where we thought there might be an airplane, and you record that and you map out the returns mm-hmm. and look for magnetic or any kind of a metal anomaly. Well, there were some 55-gallon drums and stuff out there, but didn't find any airplane. Uh, there was uh, that, that. How was... do you know
1: there were 55-gallon drums? Well, once
2: you have a hit, oh, there's something right here. Then you can send a diver oh. down. And, and were they, you still
1: working in a really rough sea for that, too?
2: Well, the lagoon wasn't rough. No. The, the, the lagoon is protected. Oh, the
1: lagoon is after the landing. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah the,
2: the, the lagoon might be a little bit choppy, but it wasn't, it's it wasn't rough. But, it was, but there was nothing there. Hmm. We did a detailed archaeological survey of the area where we had found the shoe parts before,
3: right?
2: Uh, that's where the baby grave was, right. and but we thought, hey, th- this may be the campsite that was talked about in the old story about bones being found on the island. We did find uh, the remains of an old campfire, and that's unusual like, on a remote yeah. location. Oh, somebody had a campfire. And here, and... where
1: the shoes were,
2: and, and that's in the same area everywhere. where those those shoe parts yeah, were right. found. That we at that time at least thought were probably a in Earhart's shoes. So the campfire made sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, good. But in the campfire, there was a little shred of paper. You look at it closely, and it was clearly part of the label off a can of something.
3: Oh, well, Earhart
2: had emergency rations with them, at least they were inventoried when she wrecked the airplane in Hawaii. That inventory included some some uh, emergency rations she had. Yeah. Oh, maybe the, maybe this is she had a can of um, banana. Yeah. The, the, oh, so maybe, maybe this is from a can of, of uh, banana that, that she had. As it turned out, we later found out. There were a couple of little marks on that label
1: yeah.
2: that we identified as part of a barcode.
1: <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> what year did they start doing barcodes? In the 1970s. something?
2: Yeah. Yeah. it's <laughs> yeah. boom, But and we then... didn't know that at the time. Wow. So, you know, it was kind of exciting to find this label. <laughs> hmm. But we didn't find anything else of any significance wow. down there. And there should have been more stuff, we figured. Yeah. That was kind hmm. of a bust. Hmm. Nothing was going well. I mean, every and and all the different places of the island where it used to be, it was kind of low ground with some crab burrows, but you'd still walk around there. Those are all flooded. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When the weather gets that bad and the tidal surges come in, all those low-lying areas just get flooded over. It was really pretty miserable. So as the time approached for us to leave the island. Our old friend, tropical cyclone Gavin, was moving farther away and the seas calmed down a little bit and they subsided enough for us to demobilize and get our beer, get our beer. (laughs) The seas subsided enough for us to get our gear off the island and and, uh, get ready to go. Because things had calmed down a little bit, Rob Beryl and his girlfriend Kat were able to get in some diving they were blown away by the pristine condition of the reef at nicomoraro oh, yeah. i mean this is they've been used to diving around fiji and, and fiji's a great place to dive and it's it, there's beautiful coral there's beautiful fish but nicomoraro is another whole world Nobody had ever yeah, been there there have been no people there to pollute anything for 50 years yeah. and they just looked at this and said oh my god their enthusiasm for that discovery well, of course we didn't know any of this at the time but that was a eventually that would lead to the establishment of the phoenix islands protected area really which is, for a time was the world's largest marine preserve and is now a world heritage site huh. i mean it was just a game changer for that part of the pacific but of course we didn't know that Robin Cat knew this is something that's got we're to be saving. saved sure. and protected. That was one of the most significant things to come out yes, of that expedition. Really. That, it,
1: that's a, that is. But
2: you don't know it at
1: the time. No.
2: <laughs> okay, so a couple of days before we're supposed to leave, the crew was trying to make up. You know, they they knew it had been a rough trip for us, and they wanted to do something good for us. So they set up this big feast for us on the beach all kinds of food and and they would come and entertain guitars and drums and we we sang we had a great time and we had way more food than we could eat and some of the team members said hey we got all this food we'd like to stay ashore tonight for the experience of being on the island oh my i said guys yeah you could stay ashore and it would be fine but we don't know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. And if it kicks up enough so that the channel is too dangerous to navigate, we've got to wait for you. Oh, we, we can't go away and leave you here, you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're not going to have another Amelia and Fred here say. on this <laughs> island, you know. We'd have to wait until the weather was acceptable enough to get you off the island. Oh and we've got a problem developing because there's another tropical depression developing out there oh wow and it it doesn't look good but they said no 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 you got to it'll be fine it'll be fine and against my better judgment i let them do it oh jeez well
1: how many of your team stayed? god
2: i think there were five or six of them really oh, yeah wow. and they had a great time and they they felt like They'd really done something important. And, uh, they, they called themselves the sand people.
1: <laughs>
2: but they were there for a couple days before we could get them off. Really? And we, we did get them off. And could
1: you communicate with them?
2: They had radios. Other than phenophores? No, no, no uh, they, okay. they, they, they had radios and we, we could talk to them. They were fine, mm. but we were kind of worried about them. But the tropical depression did develop into another tropical cyclone. This was tropical cyclone Hina, she, I think it was a Hina was a she, <clears throat> formed directly between us and Fiji.
3: Wow.
1: It was
2: right in the way. I mean, this is what you call the worst case scenario. Oh
1: my God. So what happened? What ha- what it,
2: it's kind of like finding a grizzly bear in the middle of a trail back to your cabin. You know, <laughs> gotta deal with this. We actually left a day early to try to beat this thing. Ah. But within four hours of departing NICU, we came up against what's known as a white squall. I mean, it's driving rain, rising seas. You could see the thing coming. It's like a white wall. terrifying. Wow. And it hit. Oh, my God. We hadn't really done storm at sea before. We'd had some rough seas, but this is another order of magnitude beyond anything we'd experienced. I went to Rob and I said, hey, do we need to be worried? I mean, these these seas are like 10, 15 feet. Are we in trouble? And he says, look, the boat has a 30-foot beam. As long as the waves aren't higher than the boat is wide, we're fine. We, oh. and how we can handle this. Oh, okay, good.
3: <laughs>
2: so we go on and hour by hour, this storm intensifies. The wind speed became a matter of speculation because it carried away the anemometer. Oh my. <laughs> we didn't know how hard it was oh blowing. Gosh. It was blowing real hard. <laughs> and-
1: Probably rather not know.
2: Within like a day and a half, I go to Rob, Rob, um, what do you figure these seas are running? He says, I think we're running forty to forty-five foot seas here. Oh gosh. So we're in trouble, right? He says, Well, this isn't good. Our mast is cracked and did you um, know
1: that? I mean, did you realize that? I before?
2: didn't know it, oh, but gosh. yeah, the dive deck on the stern is kinda beginning to fail. Oh. <laughs> we're like gonna we're losing pieces of the boat. <laughs> The windows in the salon broke out oh, hit by waves, and flooded the whole salon so they had to put up plywood. All non-essential crew and passengers had to be confined to our cabins uh, just for our own protection. You, you just couldn't move around safely. Yeah. So we were, con- they'd, they'd bring us sandwiches and bottled water and you just lay in your bed Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so- Naya's, Naya's going head on into these seas.
1: So was he at the helm the whole time? Well,
2: Rob is the co-owner, but he's not a captain. There there was, oh, so there, a, there, 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 there was a captain aboard.
1: Were there at least two people that knew what to do oh, with, oh, oh, in the storm?
2: Lots. Yeah, yeah. no, they're very competent uh, crew. Oh,
1: good. How long was it like that? Well,
2: by the second day. It was apparent that we had to do something different. Now, Naya is going head-on into these big waves from, coming from Hina, the tropical cyclone. Were
1: you making any headway?
2: Like one knot. Oh, I mean, it, and, oh wow. And, and every time you hit a wave, it feels like you're hitting a cow wow. in a car, you know. We're not making any progress here. We need to run for sheltered water. And the closest sheltered water is a few hundred miles away. It's the... Uh, atoll of funafuti wow in uh, what used to be the ellis islands now it's tuvalu and it's a big atoll and there's a big lagoon that you can get into and that'll be sheltered water and there's airline service there on the main island of the atoll called fungafala we can get the ship to protected water and. We can get you we can guys off because we've got reservations to get home. We're supposed sure. to be back in Fiji, and we don't want to miss our connection. We've we've got to change course to go to Funafuti. That means we're no longer taking these waves on the nose. We're we're taking them on the port quarter. Well, so now what happens is you go into one of these, and it rolls up, and you think, oh, is she going over? <sighs> are we going to capsize <laughs> oh i guess not we go back and you do it again and this goes on for another two days oh my now what you about know, the
1: poor people that were seasick on the way
2: they were seasick again you know i'm an airplane guy you know i've done a lot of flying in some bad conditions and some not that great airplanes <clears throat> and i'm not unaccustomed to being scared out of my wits for a couple of hours
1: <laughs> yes but how many days are you scared? four days <laughs> Oh, is <geez. laughs> not
2: what i'm used to
1: did everyone realize <clears throat> enough to be afraid of it the- yeah, yeah.
2: Naya, i think everybody yeah. had a um, realistic view of we're in a lot of trouble but we're doing what we can do and we ha- we trust the people in charge and it's a good boat naya is a terrific strong old girl we may lose some pieces but we're okay we can just get to sheltered water so we did eventually pull into the lagoon at at Funafuti
1: that must have been
2: it was a a relief now Fongafala the the main islet the only really built up one part of the atoll is an islet about Two miles long, Mm -hmm. but you could almost throw a baseball across it. It's like really long and skinny. And it's all built up with a village.
1: Is that where the airfield was?
2: In World War II, the Americans had built a B-24 base there Ah. for B-24 bombers. Mm -hmm. And the runway goes right down through the middle of town. So now they have airline service, but it's only a few days a week. And so, most of the time, there's no traffic. So, everybody walks back and forth across the runway and rides their bikes across the runway. And the dogs and the pigs sleep out on the runway. (laughs) But when an airplane shows up, when it's actually seen in the traffic pattern, it's going to land. They have a a siren, like an air raid siren, they blow. Oh, gosh. And and everybody watches for this. Oh, there's there's a control tower and there's people there working for the airline. Oh,
1: okay. So they know it's coming. And
2: they know when it's scheduled and and when the siren goes off, everybody gets off the run. The dogs and the pigs know and they get up (laughs) and they take a pickup truck out and they drive up and down the runway and say, yeah, it's cleared. And the plane's cleared to land (laughs) and they come in and land. And then everybody goes back out on the runway. (laughs) And then when the plane's ready to leave, they blow the siren again. Everybody leaves, they check with the pickup truck, and the airplane takes off. It's a great system. There was a flight due out that day, but there were only three seats left on the, on the plane. Oh. Now, the airline that serviced the island was, at that time, Air Marshall Islands, long since out of business. Uh, they, they were flying these twin engine turboprop uh, planes. They only had three seats left on the, the flight going out to Fiji. Uh. Well, we had three people that we wanted to get out. Our archaeologist, another guy who had to be back at work. And my wife, Pat, was going out so that she could get in touch with everybody's family and let them know what was going on and handle the logistics on the other end. So those three got out on that flight. And the rest of us said, oh, we just need to get a room for the night at the hotel the the travel lodge only hotel on the island (laughs) we're gonna get a room for the night and go out tomorrow (laughs) there's a flight scheduled out tomorrow and there's room on the flight and we'll all get out and uh, there's there's nine of us left and so the next day the weather's improved enough so that naya figures they can go on out and make their way back to fiji they leave and the nine of us are ready to go until we find out Yesterday on the way down to Fiji, the plane developed propeller trouble. Oh. And they got into Fiji okay, but the plane's grounded.
1: Is that their only plane?
2: Oh, they had another plane. That plane was uh, up in the Marshall Islands, but the crew's contract had expired and they had left. They didn't have a crew for the other
1: plane. Oh my. They no, only had they two. Left aer- it there? They only had two
2: airplanes and <laughs> their
1: contract expired not that they were working overtime and had to wait. They were just No, gone. no,
2: they just they, they just left. Oh jeez. So the the Funafuti 9 are now stuck. <laughs> you know, and we don't know for how long because the word on this propeller is that the prop a, a new prop has to come from Australia. And the technicians to pay, change the prop have to come from New Zealand,
1: so oh, it's no, going to be a while. Really, did you decide uh, to buy a house while you were there?
2: The only other Westerners in residence on uh, on Funafuti were some Aussie military guys, hmm. like a Coast Guard thing. Right, and we'd see them in the bar at the hotel. They'd say things like last group that was marooned here were here for six months Uh, (laughs) we could we could probably find you a place to live get you a job (laughs) thanks a lot guys
1: that's just crazy like what a perfect ending to such a
2: yeah it it was a frustrating disappointing end of a harrowing expedition i I felt like we had really hit bottom. Uh, <laughs> the expedition had produced no positive results.
3: Mm.
2: And the Daniel gotten us killed. Really? And now we were stuck in funa
1: effing f***ing.
2: <laughs> but, you know, you never know when serendipity is lurking just around the corner. <laughs> in episode three of season four, oh. we'll talk about what happened next. Right.
1: You know, okay, we'll have to this work.
2: is this is a crazy story. <laughs> and it just gets crazier. Can
1: you just give us a hint how many days you were there? No. Or... <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. We'll
2: wait and find
1: out. <laughs> okay, well we'll talk about that next talk week. Talk about that next week. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Rick. Hello, Rick. In the last episode we left nine members of the nineteen ninety seven expedition team marooned in Funafuti.
2: Funafuti. Yes, indeed. Uh, technically, the, the Funafuti is the entire atoll, and the one island that is has a, a village on it is Fungafala. So we were in Fungafala, Funafuti.
1: I feel like I should say God bless.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so it sounds funny to us. It doesn't sound funny to them. We had come off an expedition that didn't turn out the way we thought it would, We didn't find anything. We still didn't know where the airplane went off the reef and into the water. We were quite sure that that's what happened. They landed on the reef, sent radio distress calls for several days, and then were washed into the ocean. We thought maybe into the lagoon, but we hadn't been able to find anything in the ocean and we didn't find anything in the lagoon. So we didn't know where this happened. Because there's lots of places on that reef where you could land an airplane. But the worst aspect of the expedition was that we had been hit by two tropical cyclones. There was one cyclone that didn't hit us directly but created such dangerous sea conditions of the island that just getting people off and on the island through the landing channel was harrowing to say the least. And then on the way home... We ran smack dab into another tropical cyclone that prevented us from getting back to Fiji. We we were experiencing 45 foot seas, uh, extremely high winds. We were starting to lose pieces off the boat. We were making no headway, so we had to run for sheltered water, and the only sheltered water was Funafuti, and it was about 300 miles off our course. So we had to turn, which then put the seas on our port quarter, which...
1: How long a trip, once was, you made the turn, was it?
2: We were, it was another couple days oh, to, to get to, to Funafuti. But we did get there. We got into the lagoon. Water was still pretty choppy in the lagoon. Funafuti, Fungafala, has an airport, and it has airline service. And we knew that, and we said, okay, we'll... Just get off here and catch the airline back to Fiji and get our flight home. Mm. We got in there. There was indeed a flight going out that afternoon, but they only had three seats left. So we put three people that had to get out. We put our archaeologist on the plane, another team member that had to be back to work, and then my wife, Pat, went on the plane so that she could get in touch with everybody's family, and be the liaison. But we expected that the rest of us, the other nine of us, could get out the next day. So
1: they had a a scheduled flight every day?
2: Well, not every day, but in this particular case, they did have flights going out of there to Fiji two days in a row. So So it just happened. We, We expected that we'd be able to get on that flight and everything would be cool except on the flight down to Fiji one of the propellers on the plane malfunctioned and the plane was grounded and in order to get a new prop the prop would have to come from, I think I've got this right, Australia and a mechanic to install it would have to come from New Zealand and this would all have to be done in Fiji and nobody could say how long that was going to take the airline had one other airplane, and that was up in the Marshall Islands, but the crew's employment contract had run out, and they had left.
1: So, <laughs> so the plane was sitting there, crewless. <laughs>
2: so the plane was sitting there, crewless, and we were sitting in Funafuti, clueless. So you know that's where it was. Okay. Well, where do you stay in Funafuti? Yeah. Well, there was one hotel. The tra- Oh, so
1: there's no. No question then. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. The Travelodge. And really? it's not a bad hotel on by Pacific standards, but uh, they had experienced the same storm everybody else did and they had not been resupplied for a long time oh. and they were pretty much out of stuff. All they really had left was mutton. Oh. And while we were there, we had mutton in every shape and form you can imagine. <laughs> But that's what there was. Funafuti is an interesting place. It's part of the nation of Tuvalu, and which is mostly just these little atolls with subsistence uh, cultures. But the one place that's built up at all, Fungafala on Funafuti, in Tuvalu, has no industry. But the government does run. Satellite relays, these huge satellite dishes, primarily at that time, they were doing satellite relays for phone sex in the
3: United States. Now,
2: the the operators weren't there doing the phone sex. This is just providing linkage for the calls. (laughs) That's what we were told anyway. I mean, God knows. Uh, So that's really the only industry there was and the only income for the country but there was no unemployment there, because they were really great at creating jobs. You, they just were experts at taking any job and turning it into about a dozen jobs.
3: Oh, really?
2: Yeah. They uh, give you an example. I mean, in in the hotel, ordering lunch, kind of like going to a closing on a house. <laughs> there were these things you had to paperwork you had to do and sign things and several different people had to take care of this
1: to to serve you mutton
2: to serve you some mutton (laughs) okay this is before satellite phones okay Uh so we want to make an international phone call so to do that you went to the telephone office you told the clerk the number you wanted to call and she would write that down and then she would take it into another room and give it to someone who would then calculate the permanent charge for the call that you wanted to make. And then she would bring it back out and the clerk would inform you that call is going to cost you so much per minute. And you'd say, okay, that's fine. So that person would then report to another person who assigned you one of the phones on the wall. That was going to be is your call.
1: Like in the same building.
2: Oh, yeah. No, it was all in the same oh, room, really. <laughs> then an operator, another person would put the call through, and then your assigned phone would ring. And you'd go over, and you'd pick up your phone, and you'd make your call. And then afterward, the person who calculated the cost of the call would re- report the, the total charge to the clerk, who is then gonna collect the money from you. But you had to have exact change, because she didn't make change. Oh. It had to be exact amount, and you re- rarely did have exact change. So, so was you it ha-
1: in their money? That what, what was
2: the actually? I think we used U.S. dollars okay. mostly, huh. but you would then have to go across the street to a store and buy something so that you <laughs> could get the right change to come back and pay for your phone call. Well,
1: that's all really industrious of them. <laughs> oh, it could
2: take most of an afternoon I to guess. make a five-minute phone call. Yeah. Well, but that was different. the way it was on Funafuti.
1: How different was the time zone from the East Coast?
2: Well, let's see. Uh, Nucamororo. Okay. About seven hours. Okay.
1: Yeah. So if you went in the morning, you could get somebody. Oh, yeah. During the day, yeah. You
2: yeah. could you, you get somebody. So here we are, obviously hoping they're going to get this airplane fixed and we're going to get out of here. 'Cause there's there's nothing to do on, on Fun of Footy. You can shoot pool in the hotel bar for fifty cents a game Australian. Or you can watch Bollywood movies on the T V in the bar. Uh-huh. Of course they're in, in India, Hindu India, or yeah. Urdu or whatever, <laughs> uh, but they're still pretty entertaining, you <laughs> know, you don't mean. They
3: are. It's all the it's same plot. The,
2: every Bollywood movie has the same plot. Yeah. The the heroine who has uh, an evil employer or landlord, or something, and then Somebody there's the hero that comes. You know, the, you know how it goes. <laughs> or you could rent a motorbike for ten dollars a day oh. and drive it on the two miles of road up and down the little. Just like the pigs island.
1: and the kids did. The what? <laughs> the kids and the pigs. That, oh, oh, the oh 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 the kids the and the airport. pigs on the.
2: Yeah, oh, the, so everybody that goes back and forth across the runway, and wow. pigs and dogs sleep on the runway.
1: And so there's a road that is oh, you, on the Oh, you
2: island. don't ride your bike, no, you, you can't ride your motorbike on the runway. I do No, it. no, you can cross the <laughs> runway, but you can't go up and down the runway. But there are, there is a road that goes from one end of the island to the other end.
1: And that's it's, just two miles?
2: Yeah, it's a couple miles. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the 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 island itself is about two miles long, but you could almost throw a baseball across it. It's very narrow.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. We would ride. It's just a crushed coral road. It's not paved. Yeah. But it's something to do. But mostly we we'd go down to the airport office, and we'd check. Now the the airline representative there, the agent, guy named Nick, very nice guy. And we would say, so, Nick, is the airplane coming? And he says, oh, yes, yes, the airplane is coming, but not today.
3: <laughs>
2: oh, the same thing every day, but not today. I mean, that kind of became a thing, you know. I bet. <laughs> uh, okay. So you kept checking. And th- that was the worst thing about it, not knowing when this was going to end sure it just it was kind of like being in the army you know and it, you, there's rumors but you never know for sure the abc news film crew's sound man the name was kenny mm-hmm. got real tired of this and he decided that he was going to solve the problem the way he solved problems back in la and kenny went down to the airline office and accosted nick verbally <laughs> Pounded his fist on the counter and just Jeez. made a real scene. Okay, so I'm out riding my bike, and somebody comes running up to me and says, Rick, you gotta get back to the hotel. The Minister of Transportation needs to talk to you right away. Oh okay, now what? So I go back to the hotel. And the Minister of Transportation is there and he's furious. And he says, Your man, Kenny, is down in the airline office and if you don't get him under control, we're going to put him in jail. (laughs) And you don't want to be in a Tuvalu jail. Mm. Trust me. I said, yeah, I trust you. The uh, ABC News producer was there with me, Howie. I said, Howie, we got to get Kenny. He says, yeah, we got to get Kenny. (laughs) So we went down to the office and we Got our hands on Kenny and dragged him back to the hotel and locked him in his room. There was a lot of bad feeling about this because the, ugly, the ugly American had caused a scene and, and this is not good. So I, I went to one of the wait staff in the, the many wait staff in the hotel who I knew spoke English quite well. And I asked her, I said, So in Tuvaluan, how would you say devil? And she said, Oh, that would be Anganga. Okay, and how would you say white? Oh, that's Parangi. So, Anganga Parangi would be white devil, right? And she said, Yeah. <laughs> Why do you? It's okay. Never mind. So, I went back down to the airline office, and Nick is sitting there just fuming. <laughs> and I said, Nick, I just wanted to let you know. That from now on, Kenny will be known as Angangaparangi. And he about fell off his chair. He thought that was about the funniest thing he'd heard. And the word got around the aisle Oh, Kenny, (laughs) Parangi, And it turned the whole thing into a joke, and we were cool. (laughs)
1: Well, how about
2: Kenny? How was he? Um, We let Kenny cool his heels for. A while <laughs> and let him let be you known that he was going to behave himself or he was going to be in a lot of trouble with us so so far you know we, nothing constructive was getting done so we're, what day was this How many oh days? i think we're like four or five oh, days geez. into this thing wow we get to uh talk we, we talk to everybody you know a little place like that you, t- you talk to everybody and we're talking to the manager of the hotel. A lovely young woman named Risasi Finicasso, and she wanted to know what we were doing. Of course, you know how how's how's this? All these Americans show up and you know are stuck here, and we explained that we had just come from Nicomoraro and Kiribas, and, and we were uh, looking for evidence of Amelia Earhart. And she, Did she know who she No, is. she had never heard of Amelia Earhart, but we explained it and she thought that was all interesting. And she went, well, you know, I, that is interesting because, you know, I was born on Nicomararo. I said, what? I say what? <laughs> really? Says,
1: yeah,
2: yeah, I was, uh, my, my family was there uh, at the time I was born. It was, it was early 1950s, I've forgotten the exact year, but early 50s.
1: Why was her family there?
2: Uh, well, she was uh, Tuvaluan, and in that time, the Tuvalu was the Ellis Islands. And Ellis Islanders are a diff- different ethnic group than the Gilbert Islanders, the Caribbean okay. right. people. Uh, the Tuvaluans are Polynesians, and the Gilbertese, Caribbean people, are Micronesians. The British always thought that the, the Ellis Islanders were sharper. And so they would get the training right. for things like carpenters and, and radio operators and police and hmm. things like that. Rasassi was telling us about Nicomararo and the traditions on Nicomararo. And, she, and, and she, was, she was quite familiar with the Gilbertese traditions on Nicomararo, which is a bit unusual for the Ellis Islanders because they right. didn't. Hold much with the Gilbertese well, traditions.
1: How, how long did she live there? So, was she there as a.?
2: She was there for about 10 years. Okay. I think. So. Yeah. We asked Rissasi if she'd ever heard of Moraro's supposed guardian goddess, uh, ancestor. She says, Oh, you mean Nemanjerebuka? I said, Yes, that's exactly who we mean. Because we knew all about Nemanjerebuka, we'd been told about her. Uh-huh. Now, OK, I should explain about Nemanjinebuka. All of the islands of the Gilbert Islands at that time, and maybe still do, traditionally had guardian ancestor. And one of these ancestors was Nemanjinebuka. Now, Ne is simply like a Ms; It's just ah. a female. Mm-hmm. Nemanjinebuka. And Manjinebuka means old woman of the buka trees. And in Gilbertese tradition, Nemanjina taught the people of the Gilbert Islands long distance canoe travel, very powerful ancestor, who came from an island called Niku Maroro, in Gilbertese tradition. Okay, so back in 1937, when the the British expedition came to what was known as Gardner Island, to evaluate it for future settlement, the party that was accompanying the two English colonial service officers, Harry Maud and Eric Bevington, 16 Gilbertese elders. And they knew all the old traditions, of course. And they look at this island that's covered with buka trees. Uh-huh. And they said, we know where this is. This is Nicomororo,
3: <laughs>
2: the home of Nimania Buka." And that's how the island got its modern really? name. Yeah, that's
1: the story. So um, it was originally uh, a myth, that the island was a, a myth and- Yes. Oh, that's interesting. It wasn't a
2: myth to them. Yeah, I mean, right. any, any more than Mount Olympus was a myth to the Greeks. Right. You know, that's where the gods are from. Well, this the was is... from Nicomararo and this is obviously Nicomararo. That <laughs> yeah. means the Maninabuka is here.
3: Wow.
2: And this is serious stuff now. Yeah. That's why in the expeditions, we always had to put our hands in the sand and touch the yes, sand to our I faces that. so that Nemaninabuka would come and sniff us. We thought it was the wind blowing, but it was her sniffing us. <laughs> and as long as we smelled like the island, she would not molest us. Oh. Okay, that's why it's so important. Risasi was very familiar. Oh, yes, Nemanja Buka. She said, do, do you know Nemanja Nabuka's chant? I said, what? Oh yeah, there is a there's a chant. I I know her chant. Everybody knew Nemanja Nabuka's chant. And she actually okay. wrote it down for us.
1: So it was something she learned as a little girl. Oh yeah, she thinking. learned it.
2: And I'm I'm gonna do as much as I can remember of the Tuvalu and I'm gonna butcher it, but Te Yang Moro Te Karobak Okay, and it goes on and on. It's kind of like that. I'm just reading what she wrote down. And what it means, well, translated, it's Blow strong winds, rainfall, lightning, lightning, Coming with thunder, roaring her footsteps, Her traveling from abode in Nirabu, That's Naimangnebuka, stronger, stronger, welcome, over there, over there is your opponent. That's Nemanja Bukha's tent, you know, she's coming and she seems to be kind of pissed, and don't be pissed at me, your opponent's over there. And so, wow, this is really fascinating stuff.
1: Was that part of the tradition when you enter the island, or did they do that as part of a religious ceremony? I don't
2: know, I don't. That's, know when people on the island would say that yeah. but you know make a reference to this place called Nirabu and we later figured out where Nirabu is on Nicomararo, on, on Nicomararo. it's down by the southern lagoon passage oh, so, Interesting. yeah so <laughs> there we are on Funafuti, and, and suddenly we're, we're learning. learning things that really
1: yeah well, that, that's and sh- amazing. so we're
2: talking to Rasasi. You're looking for this American woman who disappeared in an airplane. Hmm. I have a friend. She's a little older than I am. Who uh, mm-hmm. worth asking her if she knows anything about this? Because uh, she was she was uh, was
1: she there at the same time?
2: Yeah, yeah. She was oh, wow. she was there on the island. Uh, she's a little older than I am, and so, and she might on. remember things that I don't. And next day we talked to Rasasi. she says tapania wants to talk to you
1: interesting so
2: okay so we we go and we see tapania mm-hmm. well i did see pieces of an airplane
1: where really
2: well she says it was they were, I, they were some of them were washed up on the shoreline but others were there, there was a piece of a wing out on the reef flat in in the water. Really, I can show you where I, I we had a map and and she marked a place on the map down near the main lagoon passage. Hmm. We thought that was pretty interesting because we knew that wreckage from the shipwreck, the Norwich City, right. was distributed north uh, from the northwest to the southeast. That's uh-huh. the prevailing path of. Well, that's where uh, storms, drives, things, That's very clear. So if you've got a wing there, it came from up there. So this is our first hint that maybe up there is where the airplane went into the water. And so had you
1: ever looked in that area?
2: No, back in 1991 when we did a sonar survey yeah. around the island looking for the airplane, mm-hmm. the one underwater area we couldn't search Was that area off the northwest end because that's where they ran the sonar fish into an underwater obstacle and lost it? Oh, okay. So that was the one place we had never done any underwater uh, sonar work.
3: Hmm.
2: So we're thinking, wow, for the first time, now we've got some hint of
1: where Where
2: this landing may have taken place. And then she. my father also remembers something. Well, her father had been the island school teacher, again, wow. a Tavaloan with special skills. Yeah. His name was uh, Pulakai Sangavalu. Is he
3: still alive?
2: And he was still alive, but she cautioned us that, oh, he's very old and he's very senile and you can't the... oh. He seemed fine. <laughs> you know, he, he was maybe having a good day, but but he said, yes, I I, I saw. Uh, a piece of, from an airplane, I don't know what kind of airplane, but it was on the shore of the lagoon, and he marked the place, it's on a little peninsula across the main lagoon passage. So some floating piece of wreckage that was washed through the passage would logically wash up on that peninsula. That's where he said he saw it, This thing, and I said, well, what do you think? I just assumed it was something from the war. Yeah, because it's after World War II sure. and and yeah. he hadn't been there during the war and so whoa okay what happened to it? well people salvaged it you know people took pieces that were useful and, and we knew that people were doing that with we airplane wreck we we'd we found lots stuff. of scraps yeah. in the old village but suddenly we've got information that we never had before and Funafuni wasn't a complete loss after all. It was one of the <laughs> luckiest things that happened to us.
1: Wow! So, so you're not you're planning your next trip already? Oh <laughs> yeah! Oh, no, we got to
2: check out this. We got to get out there. We got to. After we got home, is there any way we can verify this anecdote that Tapania told us about airplane wreckage on the reef and this? Yeah. Well, we've got aerial mapping photos that were taken in 1953. And it's a whole series of photos that overlap okay. each other like you do with aerial mapping right. photos. Maybe our forensic imaging expert, Jeff Glickman,
1: right. who
2: made it possible for us to find the tank that didn't turn out to be an airplane fuel tank, yes, but, it, he but he,
1: located but he it
2: found that it. tank in aerial photos. Maybe he can find something in the aerial mapping photos. And so Jeff went to work, and sure enough, he found, I think it was a total of four objects, light-colored objects on the reef in that area that appear in two overlapping photos. So you know it's not a flaw in the the negative or a fleck of dust. They're giving us what's called a specular reflection. They're metal. Oh, and there's so, nothing on that shipwreck that's going to be shiny metal. Huh. Oh, I, and I should have mentioned, when I, we were talking to Tapania about the piece of a wing she saw on the reef, yeah. I asked her well, what color was it, and she pointed to the ceiling, the underside of the aluminum roof oh. on the, on their, uh, the hut. The so, house.
1: that's interesting. Yeah.
2: It's the right color. Yeah. <laughs> you
1: know? like things are adding up.
2: Yeah. It turned out that uh, the great uh, Funafuti marooning was, <laughs> and the plane did come, and we did get out of there. Oh my. No. <laughs> How
1: um, long ultimately were you there? Oh,
2: we were there for six days. Oh six days
1: and you went back to Fiji and from and there, we went back,
2: back to Fiji and caught flights back to the United States um, and lived happily ever after
1: yeah, until um, the next trip until the next trip
2: <laughs>
3: so
1: so when when you got back uh, how much longer before you planned then to go again did you right away set out with
2: we always set out thinking that well when we, we, we obviously need to go back. And how are we going to go back? And where in God's name are we going to find the yes. money to go back?
1: Always <laughs> that.
2: But then something happened that changed everything. What? New evidence cropped up that sent us to another island. Really? An expedition to a different island. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. Oh my,
1: okay. I'm anxious to hear that. I didn't realize. Okay, well, thank you, Rick. We'll talk to you next time. You bet. Rick, at the end of the last episode, you had just returned from that storm-tossed 1997 NICU-3 expedition with new information and big plans for another trip to Nikumaroro. But you said something happened that changed your destination to a different island. What was that?
2: Well, we immediately began planning the next trip to Nikumaroro, NICU 4. Okay. We were wanted to do an intensive eyeball and metal detector search of the area along the beachfront where the woman in Funafuti had told us she'd seen airplane wreckage. And right, we confirmed I bet. that. And then there was her father, Pulakai, who said that he had seen airplane wreckage on the lagoon shore. We really were eager to get back and and do all that, but later that month, that same month we got back, we got got an email. The guy says, "I have taken some pictures and airlifted an engine that appeared to be from a 1340 from the Coral Beach of Gardner Island." Now, what? The engines on Earhart's Electra were Pratt Whitney R1340s. And this guy's saying he took pictures and airlifted an engine that appeared to be a 1340 from the coral beach at Gardner Island.
1: So, when was he there and well, why? Well,
2: needless to say, that got my attention. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Um, all right, here's the backstory on it. In 1970, the Space and Missile Systems Organization's space launch functions were reorganized. With something called the Space and Missile Test Center, SAMTEC for short. Hmm. And that was established to oversee space launches from Vandenberg Air Force Base and Cape Canaveral. Now, what they were doing was ICBMs, Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. Ah. And these had uh, multiple warheads on them, they were called MIRVs. The deal was that they would fire a missile from Vandenberg Air Force base out over the Pacific and they would target uh, areas within the Phoenix Islands which were uninhabited so there's nobody out there and these are dummy warheads there's huh. there's no explosives there they set up radar stations on three of the islands in the Phoenix group Canton Island which used to be a big military base during World War II, and was later a refueling stop for airliners, the big four-engine prop jobs. Uh, uh So there was some good infrastructure at at Canton. They also set up a a radar on Enderbury Island, just a nothing little uninhabited spit of land, and Hull Island, another atoll in the Phoenix Group, under Canton
1: for this project
2: for this project okay uninhabited and the idea was these radars would watch the ocean surface and they would see the splash oh when the warheads dummy warheads hit and
1: they could triangulate and so, them. yeah
2: they could adjust their aiming and right. so forth to support this they had um helicopters they had three big sikorsky hh3 helicopters hmm kind of like the Jolly Green Giants everybody knows uh, from the Vietnam era. And this was going on from 1971 until 1976. And this guy who emailed me, his name was Bruce. I'm not going to go into his last name because that's not important. But Bruce was a crew chief on one of the Sikorskis. And his story was that on this particular day they flew out to one of the outlying islands they didn't usually go to the other islands that didn't have radars on there was no need to but this particular day for some reason they went out to gardner island of course now nicomororo that uh, was really quite a ways out for them to go they happened to be there at low tide and he looks down out the big open door on the side and he sees an old radial round airplane engine on the reef flat sitting there just sitting there he says wow that's really interesting yes and he talked the pilots into landing on the beach and then he dragged a cable out and hooked it onto this engine and they took off and they slung that engine under the helicopter.
1: The whole way to Canton Island?
2: All the way two hundred miles back to Canton oh my Island. Gosh. And then he <laughs> he put the thing on just an engine test stand outside the oh. his shop, his mechanic shop. <laughs> and he'd poke around at it and try to figure out what it was and stuff. And he remembered very specifically, he says, you know, I know it was a single row. Nine-cylinder radial. I'm quite sure it was a 1340.
1: And well, this it sounds is a, like he knew what he was talking about. Well, if at the could've...
2: time he contacted us, he was 54 years old, married, two children. He had taught aviation maintenance at the same school for the past 24 years. Wow! He really knew his airplane engines, yeah. and he was now ahead of the, the, the head of his department. Hmm. He provided his information to us for free with no desire for publicity or payment. He became a Tiger member, joined Tiger, and uh, it was really active in helping us verify the various parts of his story. Because we obviously wanted to check him out. Really? Is he who he says he is? And (laughs) Was he where he says he was? And so forth. What we were able to check was fairly limited. But what we could check did check out. We couldn't find any of the pilots he flew with, but we did find another guy who would work there for Samtec. And he said, "Oh yeah, I remember uh, Bruce had a uh, old rusty engine on a stand. outside was shop for a while." Well, the story was that he'd had it on that stand for a while, but then they had an IG inspector general inspection company. Oh. and the commanding officer says, "You got to get that, please." place cleaned up get that thing out of here so he loaded it in the back of a pickup truck and took it out to the dump oh, it geez. was out beyond the runway and he just put it in the dump and he said <laughs> it's still right there and wow. we're thinking wait a minute is it possible that one of Earhart's engines is sitting there waiting for us to come get it. That's at a crazy. dump on Canton Island. <laughs> we need to get to Canton <laughs> as soon as we can. Uh, how are we gonna do that? We, we gotta figure out how we're gonna do that. Yeah. So that kind of preempted plans for another trip to Nicomararo. Really? I mean, if we can get an engine right there in Canton. That's...
1: And can you still fly in there and land? Well.
2: Canton has had and has a good runway, but um, we needed to find out what the conditions of the runway oh, sure. were, and, and uh, so. So but, is it? Yeah, it we were thinking. Yeah, the military
1: still have any presence there, or the, the U.S.? No, no. Okay, the, so. When
2: the Air Force left there in '76, turns out they just picked up and left, Oh, and darn. the place is. A mess mm-hmm. uh, there are a few Gilbertese families caribus people mm-hmm. there to occupy the place uh-huh. you know, and they get resupplied every once in a while and we started working on that you know, how, how are we going to put this this yeah together?
1: you have to do that
2: so we're we're working along on that researching that and, and then in june of 97 i get another email one of the things I really like about my job is you never know what's going to show up in your email. <laughs> really? You know, it just. Well this email was from Peter Macquarie, who was a Tiger member living in New Zealand. Ah, his membership was up for renewal, and we hadn't received his membership. And I emailed him and got no reply. And geez, I wonder what happened to Peter. And then on June 27th, 97, I get this email. Dear Rick, just to let you know that I am back on email again after a lot of traveling, including Rabi Island, Kiribati, and Tuvalu. And I'll I'll now be at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, until the end of the year while I finish my book on Kiribati in World War II. He's a a writer, and he was doing... Research for the books he writes. Uh He writes about World War II in the Pacific Islands Most of July I will however not be here as I'm going on a trip to the Tuckalaw Islands Okay in Kiribati I had a good look at the government archives and found the file on the remains found at Nicomararo by Gallagher It turned out they were the remains of a Polynesian man more than 60 years old when he died and the remains had been exposed to the atmosphere for at least twenty years. Wow. The sole of the shoe was a woman's, all right. Stay in touch. Regards, Peter McHugh. Wow. I read that. I said, "Holy moly!" <laughs> He's dismissing it. He says the file says the they were the bones of a sixty-year-old Polynesian man. They'd been around twenty. The fact is, there's paper on this. Yeah. This is been nothing but rumor since the beginning of this project that bones were found on the island yes and everybody said it was nonsense and the story we knew had a lot of things in it that weren't true but we suspected there was some truth
1: in it coming up yep
2: but suddenly yeah it really did happen we need to see whatever is in that file as soon as possible well peter's back in New Zealand, and getting in touch with the archives in Tarawa in 1997 was not easy. <laughs> I mean, it was very difficult to make a phone call, get somebody that spoke English. Mm. I need it. I need this stuff faxed to me. We we did find a guy, an Australian expat living in Tarawa, and he agreed to help us with this. So he'd go down to the archive. And he faxed us copies of the telegrams in this file that okay. Peter had seen. It, it took us probably a few weeks to, to get that all sorted out. What these telegrams seem to be are Gallagher, the, 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 the British colonial officer who was the resident officer on Nicomorara for a, a time. Right. And these were telegrams, that were his copies that were in his file. So when he'd send a telegram to somebody he'd keep a copy of his file and then when a a telegram would come in he would put that in the file so there's back and forth here Hmm. a skull was found by a work party before he got to nicomororo this was april of 1940 the work party finds a skull now they were On the other end of the island, down at the southeast end from where the village and the government headquarters were, they were probably cutting wood for the construction of furniture that Gallagher had ordered built from native lumber on the island for his new headquarters. They find this human skull Hmm. and they bury it. Because if you're Gilbertese and you find a skull, that's what you do. Otherwise, you're going to have ghost trouble. <laughs> so they buried the skull. And the island magistrate, native magistrate, uh, Kawata, Buaki Kawata, found what turned out to be a Benedictine bottle, liqueur bottle, that yeah. reportedly had fresh water in it for, for drinking. He took that as a souvenir. Now this is back in April, Gallagher's not there yet. Gallagher arrives in early September and the same ship that brings him takes Kawada away to go for medical treatment in Tarawa. Ah. So they have very little time together. But Kawada takes the bottle with him and Gallagher only hears about the bottle after Kawada's gone. Mm. So Gallagher sends a telegram and it's in this file. To the acting administrative officer in of Tarawa, David Wernham, he says, Hey, uh, Kawada is on his way to Tarawa for medical treatment at the General Hospital. Get from him a certain bottle <laughs> that was found with bones on Gardner Island that just might be the bones of Amelia Earhart. Now, this is a telegram dated September 23rd, 1940. Wow, and says, actually yeah, said that. Yeah, something. We've got this in front of us now. Okay. Yeah, bones thought to possibly be Earhart's were found by Geller on Nicomororo in September of 1940. That friggin' happened. He also went on to explain in in these other telegrams. You see, he he reported this to the resident commissioner for the Gilbert and Ellis colony. That was on. Ocean Island, a few thousand miles away, you know, yeah. that he had found a partial skeleton. He, he he went to where they said the skull was found and buried. There he looked around and he found a partial skeleton and he found parts of a woman's stout walking shoe or sandal, he said, but it was part of the soul of a woman's stout walking shoe or sandal but he was quite sure it was a woman's. Hmm. And he found a sextant box, a, oh, really? a box that had once contained a navigational instrument, a, a sextant, right, right. which he thought yeah. was probably a, a nautical sextant huh. for, for a did ship. It have
1: markings on it, and well, uh, well, he yes,
2: it had numbers on it. Oh, it had two numbers, neither one of which made any sense to him. Ah, oh. did it so, to you? Did to me? <laughs> not at that time. Oh, huh. not at that time. There was remains of a campfire, and there were dead birds, and a dead turtle. And he said, yeah, obviously this was a castaway who had tried to survive and had died. Oh. The island's only been settled. You know, our people only got here at the beginning of 1939. So we haven't been here long. Right. This, isn't, this isn't anybody from our group. Yeah. This is somebody that died here before we, we got here. Obviously, a castaway and a woman's shoe and a navigational instrument. Now, Gallagher had come out to the Pacific as a cadet officer right about the time Earhart disappeared in 37. And it was all in all the papers. So so he was he was aware
3: Hmm. of
2: that. And everybody in the Colonial Service was aware that Earhart's husband, George Putnam, had put up a $2,000 reward for evidence leading to her, the discovery of her fate. Oh. $2,000 was more than a British Colonial Service cadet officer
3: <laughs> is gonna
2: make it. God knows, how. You know, it was a lot of money. He, This really got his attention, but he was also careful. He said, and it just quite possibly might be a millionaire. He sends this message off to the resident commissioner who looks at it and says, I've got to pass this on up the chain. Hmm. So he passes the information up to the High Commissioner of the Western Pacific High Commission down in Suva, Fiji, the boss of the whole shebang. Uh, That's Sir uh, Harry Luke.
1: And they are all officers of the British.
2: Yes, they're all British colonial officers. They're not military, they're Uh, colonial uh, service. Well, Sir Harry says, you tell this guy, to make a thorough search of that area and send everything he finds here to Fiji and keep his mouth shut. This is gonna be strictly secret. We're not gonna tell anybody about this until we know more about what's going on. Uh, huh. You say, well, why would he do that? I mean, if they thought it's Amelia Earhart, why not let the Americans know that, hey, maybe we found Amelia Earhart. Maybe they have information. That, that... Sure. Well, Think about it for a second. It's September 1940. What else is going on in September 1940? Like the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Like, like Britain stands alone against the Third Reich. Mm. Churchill desperately wants the Americans to do more.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Roosevelt is trying to do more, but he's got a re election coming up in just a few months. In right. November, this is September, November, there's going to be an election. And it's touch and go. And a lot of the public is very isolationist. And Wendell Wilkie is doing well in the polls. and So Roosevelt's got to be careful. And Churchill's got to be careful to how he pushes him. Well, Sir Harry knows all this. He says, you think I'm going to put myself in the middle of that? (laughs) No, 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 no. Let's keep this right here in Fiji until we know Mm. what's going on so this all this is all happening in september october that there's this exchange going back and forth between headquarters in fiji and gallagher on nicomororo but it's january of 41 before this stuff can actually get shipped because the shipping is is rare and and they had some serious weather trouble in late 1940. So it was January of 41 before the bones and all the stuff are are headed for Fiji. And uh, they're aboard the royal colony ship Nimanoa, which stops at Tarawa on the way to Fiji. Well, there's a guy in Tarawa who is a senior medical officer. His name is Lindsay Isaac. Nimanoa gets into Tarawa on February 6th. Dr. Isaac finds out that there are bones aboard Nimanoa, but he doesn't have any of the paperwork that goes with them because oh. this is strictly secret. Right. But he gets told, yeah, we have a consignment of bones here. He says, well, I assume that they were sent to me to be evaluated because I'm the senior medical officer. And he grabs the bones oh, no. and he does his own analysis of them. And he says, oh, okay, These are ancient. I mean, they're more than 20 years old. And and it's an elderly Polynesian, probably 60 years old. And uh, these things, they might be dangerous. I'm going to quarantine the harbor. What? Niminoah's not going anywhere. And I've got these bullets. And he, he lets the resident commissioner know what he's done.
1: Oh, my God.
2: And the resident commissioner says, oh, my God. And he reads Isaac the riot act and says, you let those bones go. Let Nimanoa proceed back to Fiji now. <laughs> and so Isaac kind of says, oh, all right, all right. And I still don't understand why wretched relics could be interesting. So the bones arrive in Fiji in April. And people in Fiji look at them and say, wait a minute. I thought there was supposed to be a sextant here. And they correspond with Gallagher and say, hey, we got the box, we got the bones and the other stuff, but isn't there supposed to be a sextant? And Gallagher says, no, I didn't find a sextant. I just found the box, that's all. <laughs> and that's where the file
1: ends. Really, that's it? Because
2: that's, that's all Gallagher had. <sighs> Whatever else happened, happened in Fiji. We looked at that and we said, "Wait a minute! There's, what happened? Who did, did, did somebody else look at these bonds? Did they evaluate? What did they do? We've got to find the records. They got to be somewhere. But where? Where are they going to be?" Well, we we started that search. Meanwhile, by September of ninety-seven, this is all going on in the summer of ninety-seven. By September of ninety-seven, we had a plan for getting to Canton Island going to fly there they've got a 6234 paved runway oh. it's still in decent shape we were able to confirm that good because the us coast guard occasionally flew into canton for emergency medical evacuations or um,
1: oh, sure the people the or if, people if, living. if somebody
2: really needed transportation to hawaii some of the kids, the Gilbertese kids that lived on Canton, went to school in Hawaii. Makes sense. So yeah. The Coast Guard would occasionally fly a C 130 down from, uh, from uh, Hawaii. So it
1: could handle that. Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: All right. We'll need an aircraft capable of making that 2,000 mile flight from Hawaii to Canton. Hmm. It should be a turbine aircraft because there's only Jet A available ah. on the island. There's no avgas there, it's only jet fuel. Hmm. The aircraft will have to be able to carry a scientific team of at least six people and it's going to have to have a door door large enough to accommodate the dimensions of an R1340 radial engine, which by the way is 51.6 inches by 41.01 inches, in case you were interested. (laughs) And it would have to be able to handle the engine's 865 pound weight <laughs> okay and you know while we're in the neighborhood we want to overfly nicomoraro and, and get the aerial photography we've always wanted because oh, the only aerial photography we have of nicomoraro at that time is this old old u.s government stuff from right. wartime and and earlier this is before satellite photos yeah right now, good god, I mean, we've got to look at it, but back then it was a big deal. We, we got to have some aerial photography of this island. Well, we found a Gulfstream 1 twin turboprop Ooh. that was for charter in Hawaii. The airplane had a 2,000 mile range, what we needed, but it turned out that the Jet A on Canton was old and not reliable. On yeah, can't do that. We needed to find somewhere to refuel on the way, so we can go into Canton with enough fuel to return to the refueling point. Well, there's not a lot of places between <laughs> Hawaii and Canton, but there was a World War II airstrip on Palmyra Atoll, which was almost exactly halfway. And still- a 1,000 miles from Hawaii, 1,000 miles from-
1: Still active? Did they have fuel? No. Oh.
2: They did not have fuel.
1: But they had a good runway. Well,
2: they had a runway, (laughs) put it that way. Palmyra was owned by the U.S. government, but it was uninhabited except for a small crew to manage the Nature Conservancy Climate Adaptation and Resilience Laboratory
3: there,
2: some scientists. Hmm. So we needed to get permission to use the airstrip. There was no fuel, so we'd have to pre-position fuel and hand pump from 55-gallon drums to refuel the Gulf Stream. (laughs) We've just erased about 60 years we're, really? do, we're doing it exactly like Amelia Earhart had to do <laughs> and the other concern was we'd be overgross going out of Palmyra and that airstrip was 5,000 feet long but it was crushed coral oh. and it would be marginal okay so it's going to be hairy but an engine from Earhart's Electra might be waiting for us at the dump on Canton. Right, so we're going to do whatever <laughs> it takes to get there. Huh. While we worked along on finding sponsorship and selecting a team and tackling the complicated logistics of getting to Canton,
1: right.
2: we were also chasing these bones, ah. which were no longer rumor. They were documented fact now. Hmm. Now, what, what I had visited Eric Bevington, the guy who had been on the island with Harry Maud in 1937. And and we had visited him in England in 92, as I recall. I told him this story about bones being found on the island that were thought to be from Earhart's. The Floyd Kilts, a retired Coast Guard veteran story that was crazy, Uh Uh, but we saw these elements of truth in it. But Eric thought, that was ridiculous. He said if something like that had really happened, I would know about it. All of us in the Colonial Service would know about it. It, it just could could never have happened. But now we had proof and I I had stayed in touch with Eric.
3: Um,
2: and we we're we we're buddies by now. We correspond back and forth. I sent him the proof. I said, These are Gallagher's telegrams and and he was just astonished he says i don't understand how something like that could have been kept that secret i i knew gallagher i i knew the people at the west pacific high commission we talked after i was retired we used to get together over drinks and we'd always tell nobody ever said this
1: they did that good a job keeping a secret yeah Mm -hmm. and
2: that that's kind of strange yeah that they Worked that hard to keep them a secret. Eric did have some rather pointed things to say about Lindsay Isaac. Oh, so
1: you knew him. The
2: doctor in Tarawa who had intercepted the bones and uh, pronounced them to be the remains of an elderly Polynesian.
1: Uh-huh.
2: I will just leave it that Eric didn't think much of Lindsay Isaac. <laughs> he was hmm. scathing. In. Oh my. The files on what happened after the bones got to Fiji should be in the records of the Western Pacific High Commission. Yeah, but definitely. the WPHC had shut down in 1976 after all the colonies and territories under its jurisdiction had become independent. Our primary researcher who was working on tracking these records tracked them to an obscure archive located, <laughs> they were co-located with highly classified MI6 operations like the British CIA yeah, operations at Her Majesty's Communication Center in Hanslop Park a little town 60 miles north of London
1: Did you go there
2: Well at first did he, did we, he
1: go
2: there? our our first reaction when we found out where the archives were yeah, like and found, you... found out what the communication center was like said there's like, no way they're going <laughs> there's no way they're going to let Americans in there Oh uh, not because of the WPHC archives but because This is where MI6 evaluates photographs of terrorists and they're not going to last in there. But we might be able to get them to work with us via fax, just talking to the archivist. And so we asked, well, our researcher asked, do you have a file on Amelia Earhart? Well, let me check. Yes, as a matter of fact, we do have a file um what's in the file and they faxed us the contents of the file which was very small and it turns out that this is a a file that dates from 1937 when george putnam asked the british to investigate an island that he had heard about from us <laughs> from a psychic
3: oh It's an island that
2: doesn't exist. I see. But he was Mm -hmm. all over him about, you've got to get somebody to go to this location because there's an island there that a psychic says, that's where my wife and her navigator are trying to survive. So there was that that back and forth. That's what their file on Amelia Earhart said. Something was wrong. Yeah, really. Something was wrong, and we didn't know what. Anyway, we had more success putting together the expedition to Canton Island. Uh, By early 1998, we had found the sponsorship. Good. It's a wealthy individual who wanted to come along. Uh, He's an airplane guy. Yeah, cool. Cool. You know, yeah. He's willing to fund it. He's it about $50,000. Know, okay. Yeah. We've selected a 13 person team. And we had worked out all of these logistical arrangements about pre-positioning the 55-gallon drums and so forth. So at dawn on February 14th, 1998, we boarded Gulfstream November 196 Papa Alpha at Honolulu International. And we took off for Canton Island via Palmera Atoll.
1: Cool. So how did it go?
2: We'll talk about that next time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, well, we will look forward to hearing. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Hi, Rick. At the end of the last episode, you and the team were about to take off from Honolulu for the 2,000 mile flight to Canton Island, where you planned to investigate the possibility that an engine from Amelia Earhart's Lockheed Electra was sitting in a dump on the abandoned airfield. That must have been really exciting.
2: Well, yeah, it was because we were accustomed to doing expeditions on ships, and you know, it takes five days at least to get to where you're going. And now, finally, we've got an airplane. (laughs) We're gonna, it's gonna be a few hours, and um, of course, we're going to have to stop and refuel at Palmyra Island, where there was a crushed coral airstrip built during World War II. There had been no fuel stored there, so we had to pre-position fuel in 55 gallon Right.
1: And then we're gonna have to
2: pump this into the <laughs> Gulfstream One twin turboprop ah. airplane we'd, we'd chartered. But yeah, that was, it was great. You yeah, know, we we're gonna fly on down to Canton and, uh, <laughs> and uh, check out this possibility that this Oh, and Bruce, the guy who told us the story, is with us. He's, oh. he's going to take us to the dump, uh. and show us. He's going to walk up, and there's, here's the engine right here. And we said, <laughs> well, that was easy. <laughs> and how many
1: and, years ago was that? Well, thing? it
2: had been a while. He, he was there in 1971, uh-uh. and this is 1998. Uh. So, okay. So off we go. We head down there, and we, we get to Palmyra. And we land, and in the trees beside the runway is a wrecked Lockheed Electra. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah, a bad it's, it's, it's not a, a Lockheed 10 like Earhart's. It was a somewhat later model, a, quite, a little bit bigger, a Lockheed Model 14. Oh. The same type that was used by the military in early World War II as the Hudson Bomber. Anyway, so a, a Lockheed 14. The story was that a group of ham radio enthusiasts had decided that they were going to do what's called a DX expedition, where you go to some very remote place and talk to a bunch of people from there and everybody gets this little card that, oh right. I, I, you know, um, it, it's what they do. And they chartered this Lockheed 14 to take them to Palmyra. Right. Well. Something went wrong, I have no idea what, but the pilot ground looped the airplane. Okay. And I don't know if it happened on arrival or on takeoff.
1: Was it recent? A recent uh, wreck?
2: No, no, it, it had been like 15, 20 years oh, no. since this it happened. It. So this is an old wreck oh, sitting no. over there in the palm trees. <sighs> but And it wasn't all that badly wrecked. It didn't burn or anything. Nobody was hurt. But they had to get somebody to come get them, probably with a boat. <laughs> but, it, yeah, it was a little bit ominous. still. Yes, <laughs> really. Oh, it was a start. wrecked airplane right here.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: They brought out the fuel, and we pumped the fuel into the airplane. Now, we knew going in that we were going to be very heavy going out. Of Palmyra because we had to leave with enough fuel to fly from there to Canton. It's about a thousand miles. You know, Palmyra was halfway, it's a 2,000 mile uh, trip. Palmyra is about a thousand miles out from Hawaii. We were going to refuel and have to go to Canton, do whatever we did, and then fly back to Palmyra. 2,000 miles. Well, that's about the max range of a Gulfstream 1. The trouble is the runway at Palmyra is 5,000 feet, but it's crushed coral
1: mm.
2: and you don't get the acceleration sure. in crushed coral that you do on pavement. Yeah,
1: it makes sense.
2: And the pilots knew all this. And so they were set up, we ended up having to do what's called water injection into the hot section of these turboprops oh. to keep them operating at the power levels we were gonna need to go out of there. Wow. And it was one of these takeoffs where you rotate, take off on the numbers at the far end of the field. Oh my, like no room for error. No room for error, but we staggered out of there. It was, we made it (laughs) and off we (laughs) go. So we fly our thousand miles down to uh, Canton and you know, (sighs) the Pacific is a really big place. (laughs) It really is. And you get that impression when you sail for five days without ever seeing anybody. Sure. But flying is the same way. You're out there and you go hour after hour and you're up high and you look and there's nothing. Nothing but water. Mm. Then here's Canton on the horizon. You come up in good runway. Over uh, 6,000 feet long, still in good shape from World War II. Uh, huh. And um, we land. Now, there were arrangements made with the government of Kiribati, that owns Kanta, that they would be notified by radio that we were going to arrive and the customs and immigration people would be there to examine our passports and stamp us in and it'll all be cool. This was all cleared with Tarawa and uh, the Gilbert Islands and Kiribati. So we land, we taxi in, Crickets, nothing, not a sign of anybody. And it's hot, you know, it's-
3: What
1: time of day was it when you arrived? Oh God, it was like late in the afternoon. Oh my, yeah. And
2: we get out of the airplane and we're standing under the wing in the shade and we haven't been cleared, we we can't go anywhere. Right,
1: right.
2: What are we gonna do here? After a little while, toyota pickup truck with kind of a flatbed pulls up with a whole bunch of women and kids on it
1: really so no official officials no officials
2: these are just people that apparently saw the airplane coming in and came out to the airport to see what's going on nobody knew we were coming The communication had not happened as we had been assured it would. And so they're just standing over there probably 100 yards away just looking at us. (laughs) And we're standing under the wing of this airplane just looking at them. Well, my daughter Heather was with us as our photographer. She was probably 17 years old. Uh Good photographer. In Honolulu, the night before we left, we had like a big dinner mm-hmm. and everybody got a lay. It's Hawaii, you right, get a lay. Right, right, right. okay. Sure. Heather was thrilled with that. <laughs> and after the dinner, she gathered up all the lays and put them in a big plastic bag with some ice. Ah. And I thought, what do what you, you <laughs> this is silly, but okay, go ahead. So she had these with her. And we're standing there looking at these people across the ramp and Heather says, this is stupid. And she grabs her bag of Lay's and marches across the ramp (laughs) to these women and kids and starts passing out Lay's. We're from America and we have come to, uh, suddenly it's all smiles. (laughs) Oh, we'll have somebody go and get the people you need to process your and they sent somebody to get the officials and they came oh, great. and it, I was so proud of my daughter really yeah I mean she had broken the ice she,
1: sure how perfect yeah we went to a 17 so hour. we
2: we got our passport stamped and everything but by then it was late enough so that, okay we we need to get settled you know um, and find a place to, to stay well there's no place to stay the, When the Air Force left Canton Island, uh, the SAMTEC missile installation, Uh, they just walked away. It left things, uh, nothing was cleaned up, um, things had deteriorated. There was a a fire truck parked in the middle of a street with a footprint under it of just rust that had dripped off it. uh, I mean, it, it hadn't moved. There's all these buildings that storms had knocked the roofs off. There were buildings full of bags of rat poison that the roof had collapsed, the bags had ruptured uh, and there's just poison sitting around. And less. there are a few Gilberty's Kiribati's families there with kids and they're just running around. Uh, there were uh, electrical pole transformers that had fallen, laying on the ground, broken open, leaching PCBs. Right. It's just like a, the set for a movie but Armageddon or something. <laughs> yeah. So where are we going to stay here? I mean, there are no houses that you'd want to stay in. Did Look,
1: many of the people there speak English?
2: Yeah. Under, several several of them interested. spoke decent English. Mm-hmm. We decided we were going to sleep on the beach or the lagoon beach. It's the tropics, yeah, what the heck, you know. So we go out to the beach and we bed down on the lagoon beach. And about one in the morning it starts to rain. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't going to work. Everybody's (laughs) got to get up. And we ended up going into a a fueling hangar, an abandoned Ah. hangar that was still intact. It stank of jet fuel. Mm. But...
1: But it was so dry. We, it was
2: dry and we set up in there. So the next morning we get as dry as we can. It's still raining. Oh, oh. We're soaked. <laughs> We're gonna be soaked. <laughs> okay. And let's let's head on out to the to the dump. Well, Bruce lead the way. And so Bruce leaves the way and out we go. We go across the runway and down the field. Here's the dump. Now, where'd you put that engine, Bruce? It was right over Oh, this isn't what I remember. Oh. No, it's not what he remembered because after he had left, one of the things the Air Force did do was bring bulldozers out, dig huge holes, and push all the stuff at the dump into the holes and oh, no. push coral rubble back over it. Uh. So anything that had been there was now buried under tons of coral. Oh, oh man. And we've got nothing to, to dig with life on yes. that scale. Oh, gosh. I mean, we're we're we're, we're stuck. Oh. There's nothing we can do. So for the next day and a bit, we did what we could. We kind of surveyed the dump and said, oh, there's this <laughs> and then, yeah, this looks like it was part of an airplane. But It was part of a C-119. It wasn't part of a Lockheed (sighs) Electron. A few things like that. The night before we left, we were invited to a party by the Caribous people. Turns out that they had some teenagers who were going to be going to school in Hawaii. And there was a ship that was going to be arriving within a day or so to take them to Hawaii. Uh. So they're gonna have a big going away party for the kids. And as long as these Americans are there, they may as well come to the party. Well, this was great because this is very traditional Caribous stuff. The, they had what's called a manieba, which is an open sided pavilion with a thatched roof, mm-hmm. coconut thatched roof It's most analogous to a Native American uh, council fire thing where everybody has a particular place where they sit and the elders do this and other people do this. And so we were instructed to, you people are going to sit along this side over here and the food's laid out on card tables, really, uh, along this side and they had all kinds of stuff. They had um, local fish, hmm. chicken, taro, breadfruit. Yeah.
1: Did they of... have um, Coca-Cola? What kind of drinks did N- they?
2: Oh use? no, I don't remember any Coca-Cola. <laughs> oh, what did they have to drink? Cava, of course. Oh yes. they, they of Cava. There was also water. Well, once we were sitting there, and we were instructed how to sit, You sit cross-legged. And you don't speak unless it's your turn to speak, you don't volunteer. So all all the Gilbertese carabas people got up and lined up in front of us and sang to us.
1: Really? Yeah.
2: I think they were hymns mostly. They were all in Gilbertese, so we sure. didn't understand them. But nice harmonies, oh, that's very fun. nice. After they were done, I said would it be permitted if we sang for you? Oh, oh yeah, I suppose. <laughs> and I've forgotten now what we sang. Something we all knew. I wish I could remember. Christmas uh, And then once we had done that, we got up and we had to go through the food line before anybody else. They yeah. insisted on that. Yeah. You try to be polite and take stuff that you're not even sure what it is, but, you know, okay. I did pass on the chicken because it was quite clear that they liked their chicken rare. Oh, oh my. <laughs> well, it turns out that our, our doctor was braver than I was and the rest of us were. And he ate the chicken and lived to regret it. Oh, no. Oh, God. By the time we were on our way back, he was so sick. He ended up having to be put on IVs once we got the Oh, to gosh, really? You oh, know, that's horrible. It was. Oh, God. Well, salmonella is just
1: yeah. really bad.
2: But it was a wonderful experience to really? have this cultural really? exchange. But we hadn't found anything there. <laughs> if there was an engine there, it was way down there. We headed home the next day. Years later, <laughs> we. Uh, managed to connect with one of the pilots that actually flew with Bruce back in, at that time. And he said, oh, we never went out to Gardner and slung any engine. That's crazy. We uh, wouldn't do something like that. Really? No, nah, oh that gosh. didn't happen. And then through him, we connected with somebody else that had a photograph of Bruce and a friend of his Shovels in hand, digging an engine out of the sand
1: on Canton Island. Oh no, and you know that it was Canton Island?
2: Yeah, it was right there on Canton. It was, ah, and, it, so and, awesome. and and it, it was an engine with a three-bladed prop, big radial, probably an R2800, ah. uh, possibly from a, a Vought Corsair or something like that. Nothing like the engine.
1: So how does something like that happen? Was that a hoax? No. Bruce was
2: being honest with us, but it's a classic example of what we've come to call Saipan syndrome, where you have an experience that causes something of an emotional reaction enough so that you really remember it. Oh, there was this cool engine and we dug it and we I had it on a test stand by my shop and so forth. So you have that experience and then years later you hear about a famous mystery and you say, engine, I, remember, I did something with an engine. Oh, and, and these people are quite sure that, that she Uh, Landed at Gardner Island, and Gardner Island was out there. I, yeah, you know, I think I remember. Yeah, we 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 saw that engine. We slung it back. Yeah, I mean, it it Um, it, just—it's a false memory that just—it happens all the time. I mean, this is an extreme example, but the Japanese capture advocates uh, are are full of stories like that where. Somebody's, the name of the I was a young girl on Saipan in 1937 and I remember that uh, I once saw the Japanese soldiers had a white woman and you know come to think of it I think they said her name was Amelia or oh. something like that <laughs> and she had short hair and she dressed like a man and yeah, that's right there was a man with her and oh. you know and on and on it goes and there are dozens of these stories
3: Wow! And
2: so much so that we call it Saipan syndrome it's it's a well-known psychological thing that this is how false memories are wow.
1: created So we fill people in the blanks.
2: people aren't lying they're not perpetrating a hoax and you really got to watch out for
1: Wow, especially in this business. Oh, in this business, what you
2: do is you take the stories and you say, okay, is it possible that this story could lead us to real evidence? A document, a photograph, an artifact, something that corroborates. And if possible, find other people. They might have similar stories. So... There's, a, there's some bandwagon stuff that, that happens, so you gotta be careful about that too. These stories can can get more credibility if people who never knew each other tell exactly the same story. Right. And the problem with the, the Saipan stories is all the stories are a little different. They come forward when somebody else comes forward and right. there hasn't been one shred of hard evidence, document or photograph or artifact that corroborates any of it. It's it's an occupational hazard in this yes, business. Yes, I guess, and you, 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 that's
1: part of the investigation, you've I guess. You gotta listen
2: to the stories, you have to evaluate the stories, but you have to understand that the stories are not evidence. They can point you toward real evidence, but they're not, they're not evidence.
1: Right, good point.
2: After we got home, we continued to chase the Western Pacific High Commission files that we knew existed someplace mm-hmm. on the bones that we now knew right. really had been found on Gardner Island. Yeah. In 1940, we had some telegrams that had been discovered in the archive in Tarawa, but that they kind of ended with the bones arriving in Fiji to be examined and the one doctor who had examined them, in Tarawa had decided that they were just the bones of an elderly Polynesian and had been laying out in the weather for 20 years. Uh. But we also knew that they were going to conduct an investigation once the bones got to Fiji, and we really wanted to know what happened. Sure. We had asked the archivist at the Hanslop Park in England, this is 60 miles north of London, her Majesty's Communication Center, <clears throat> where the archives of the Western Pacific High Commission were co-located with MI6, the British CIA, oh, right. and is a highly secure facility. So we communicated with them by fax, with the archives by fax, asking them, <clears throat> do you have a file on Amelia Earhart? He said, "Yeah, we have a file on Amelia Earhart. Well, can you send us the file? And they faxed us the file. And it was nothing to do with the bones. It was a file dating from 1937 where Earhart's husband, George Putnam, had insisted that the British investigate a mysterious mythical island where psychics had told him that his wife was surviving on this.
3: Oh.
2: And they played along and they went and looked for this island which didn't exist and Uh but that's what the file was about Uh didn't help us at all Uh we knew something was wrong there should be a file but there isn't a file and i got to thinking maybe we're asking the wrong question remember the doctor in Tarawa, lindsey isaac had told everybody that these are not the bones of Amelia heart; they're an elderly Polynesian. So, do you have a file about a skeleton? Well, we'll check. Uh-huh. Well, sure enough. Oh, really? Come back. Yeah. WPHC file 4439, <laughs> Gilbert and Ellis Island's Colony, skeleton, human, finding of, on Gardner Island.
1: Wow. Bingo! (laughs) All right.
2: And it's thick. I mean, there's a lot there. Wow. And it's not just copies of telegrams and memoranda, but those British official files have minutes. In, In the beginning of the file, there are lined pages where every time the file is given to someone, the date is noted who gets the file
1: oh that's interesting and
2: any comments they have about the file mm. and then when they give it back and it goes back and so that's how it worked if you want to look at a file when it was in, in there in Suva Fiji in the 1940s you went and you requested the, it
1: out like a you, library you
2: check it out like a library but it was all noted and all the comments so there's all these comments and back and forth between various officials, including the doctor who did an analysis of the bones in Ah. Fiji. Now, the doctor that they chose to do this was uh, Dr. David Hoodless, and he was the director of the medical school, but it wasn't a medical school like we think of a medical school. They didn't train doctors. What they trained were what were called native medical practitioners, kind of like EMTs, but a little better than that. These were local people from Fiji and and some of the outer islands who would come and get this medical training and then be sent out to the outer islands as medical staff. So that's what the medical school did. And Hoodless, the doctor, was really more of an administrator than hmm. a practicing physician. He had a license to practice medicine, but he didn't That's not really... what he did. No, he, okay. he was a school administrator and he taught some courses, including mm. anatomy. So he knew about right. bones. Right, So the bones were given to Hoodless and he evaluated them based on the materials available to him for examination of remains at the time, which didn't amount to much because the whole science of forensic anthropology just didn't exist yet. And certainly not from a guy like Hoodless, but he did take measurements of several of the bones that had been found on Gardner Island. And he noted their length and circumference and other features. And the skull, and he noted the, the width and the breadth, the length and breadth of the skull, and the eye orbits, the eye sockets, and, ah. and noted all these things down. And then he applied what was known as Pearson's formula, which was available at that time. It was a mathematical formula where you determined eth- age, gender, and ethnicity. Really? His conclusion was these bones are definitely male and they are the bones of a European or possibly mixed race person, about 55 years old, standing about five feet, five inches tall. And this is not Amelia Earhart. No. Now, there was no mention of whether they might be Fred Noonan's bones.
1: Oh, huh. because
2: because in 1941, when Hoodless is doing this, all these guys in Fiji know is what was in the papers back in 1937, which all focused on Amelia Earhart. They didn't even know there was a man with her. They didn't know about Fred Noonan. Hmm. So they never even considered whether this was Fred Noonan. If they had known anything about Fred Noonan, they'd know that, oh, he was well over five, 5'5". But they didn't. So the word that went up to the High Commissioner was, these are not the bones of a Well, that was good news to Sir Harry Luke, the High Commissioner, uh, because he didn't want to have to get the Americans involved um, in all of this. Because it's 1941, uh, things are really tense between the United States and Great Britain over how much assistance the U.S. is gonna provide. Um, Britain stands alone against the Third Reich. And you know, things are really tense. And if he gets the Americans involved, the media, American media are gonna be all over him. And if he says anything wrong, he's gonna get in all kinds of trouble. So, okay, it's not Amelia Earhart. I don't have to call the Americans good. End of story. <laughs> And they didn't even officially close the file. They just said, "All right, that's enough," and the file just went into the stack of all the other files that the WPHC had. Very much like the uh, lost ark of the covenant in the last scenes of Raiders of the Lost Ark, it gets into this warehouse and it disappears into the. Hole. It wasn't hidden. It was just lost in the pile of other stuff. And the whole, and only about a half dozen people ever even knew about this. They kept a very tight lid on it. And the whole incident kind of disappeared. But now we had the file. We got the um, archives to fax us the, the doctor's report. And we learned all this stuff. We said, oh my God, we've got measurements of these bones and maybe the bones are still there someplace in, probably in Fiji, because the archive doesn't have any bones. Uh. Maybe maybe they're in Fiji. So we've got to put together an expedition to Fiji <laughs> to see if we can find those bones. And in the meantime, we've got to have some really good forensic anthropologists look at these measurements we have. Right. And find out if they agree with Dr. Hoodless that this is a definitely a male of uh, European or mixed race descent. So well, fortunately, we had a really top-notch forensic anthropologist on our team. Oh,
3: really, Dr.
2: Karen Burns, Carr Burns, world-renowned. Mm-hmm. I mean, she yeah. she was one of these people that the U.S. government sends down to uh, South America or out to the Middle East to evaluate mass graves and and, uh, were these people, how were these people killed? Carr was a beautiful person and a million laughs, but don't get her talking shop over dinner, because you don't want to (laughs) hear. She had this wonderful way of speaking so casually about stuff that would just curl your hair. Anyway, she was the perfect person to address this issue. This is what she does, is evaluate bone measurements and Mm -hmm. who who was this person and how did they die at some point. So Carl looks at the bones and she says, well, I think we need somebody else to do it too, just not me. And I know another forensic anthropologist who's even more famous than I am, that the University of Tennessee, Dr. Richard Jantz, who developed a computer program called 4Disc2 that's used by almost every medical examiner in the United States to assess a skull to tell uh, gender and ethnicity. Yeah, wow. So this is the guy we also want. So Carr and Richard Jantz both took on this thing independently and then compared results and completely agreed. Really? This, of course we can't be sure because we don't have the actual bones. but based on these measurements, On modern anthropological forensic techniques, these appear to be the bones of a female of Northern European origin or descent, anyway, Mm -hmm. who stood about mm, five foot seven, five foot eight. Ooh, now we have a pretty good description of Amelia Earhart, you know? Um, That's exactly who she was. Wow, we've got to get over to England and see the rest of that file. What else is in that WPHC file? We want to see uh, Gallagher's file, the, the guy who found it. Yeah, we know yeah. more about him. We need to know more about Dr. Hoodless. We need all this information. And it's all there. We know where it is now. But we just need to get over there and dig through those files and find out. What
1: and are you allowed?
2: No, you're not allowed. Oh,
1: This is a highly
2: secure facility. And we said, God, how are we going to get in there? So we start negotiating. And to make a long story short, they agreed that two American researchers could come with the understanding that we're going to have an escort every step of the way.
1: Wow.
2: If we go to the loo, we go to the bathroom, we have somebody with us but we we can go over and go to the archives. So another researcher and I the, the researcher who his name is Kent Spady had done all the footwork finding these files oh, and so forth uh-huh. and uh, had been corresponding with these people. He and I go to England in November of 1998 hmm. and we go to Hanslop Park. And we've got our little rental car and we drive up and we present our passports and credentials. And they pat us down and they put mirrors into the car and, they, and there's razor wire everywhere. But <clears throat> they let us in and they give us our escort and every door you go through had to be swiped with a wow. special card. But we do get into the archive. We look at the finding aids. This is what you do in an archive. You look at the finding yeah. aids. And you say, well, we need this box, and we need this box, and we need this box. And we fill out the little forms you fill out. And we turn them into the desk, and the nice lady at the desk says, well, we'll get this box for you, the first box. It'll probably take uh, about 45 minutes for them to, to get that from where they're stored And then once you're finished with that box, we can return it and then go to the next box. Oh, God, we've got two days. (laughs) How long did you have? And we've got dozens of boxes we want to look at. (laughs) There's no way we're going to be able to get what we want here. But I knew from the correspondence that the woman in charge of the archive was Mrs. McPherson. Now, my name's Gillespie. Gillespie's are traditionally associated with Clan Macpherson in Scotland. Ah. And I took the precaution of wearing a Clan Macpherson tartan tie. (laughs) And so when we ran up up against this obstacle, I said, Well, I'd I'd like to speak with Mrs. Macpherson if I could. And they said, Well, okay, I'll get her. Mrs. McPherson, nice elderly lady, you know, <laughs> looked like she could have been my aunt. You know, it's, it's, we all look alike. I said, uh, Mrs. McPherson, I wonder if I could ask a favor of you. And she says, aye, but I wonder if you know what tie that is you're wearing. I said, aye, it's Clan McPherson. My name's Gillespie. So what is it you need, Mister Gillespie?
1: <laughs> and we had anything
2: we wanted. We got whole
1: big, uh, A big box carts full <laughs> of, uh, we,
2: and we got to get through everything we wow. needed, and we came home with three hundred pages. Of, Could you just of, copy? Uh, yeah, we, we went. Yeah. We had to pay for the copies, yeah, but. Still. but we were happy to do that. And man, we were running stuff through that copy. Huh. I, I think at one point when we came back the second day, we had to go buy paper and oh. bring it back. Because we, <laughs> they weren't used to this kind of stuff. But yeah, we came back with all this material. Wow, and so was,
1: what did you find? Wow, well,
2: geez. We got records of all the ships that belonged to the colonial service and what ships went where at which says, so now we can trace traffic between Tarawa and Fiji and Gardner well, Island yeah. we had Gallagher's file we had his whole history and found out that when he first got to um, Nicomaroro he really didn't speak much Gilbertese at all he hadn't done well on his tests for um. l- language tests and so that makes a big difference about what he knew and what he had heard mm-hmm. and who could have talked to him. All that stuff. Uh, files on Dr. McPherson, the, the doctor that had operated on Gallagher oh, in 1941. Right. Remember that yeah, whole story yes, about how died. Stan Brown held the lantern while McPherson yeah. worked on it. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that uh, Donald Campbell McEwen. McPherson, always known as Jock, of course. <laughs> was really quite a big noise. I mean, he'd been born in a little village in the Western Highlands called acaracala <laughs> and had been to university in Scotland and then in England and then got a grant and spent three years at Johns Hopkins in really? the U.S. Yeah. And had traveled around the U.S. and then went out to the with the colonial service to Fiji. So he had a tremendous background hmm. and that was really good to know. All kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, wow. So now we have all this information we can start processing and preparing for our next expedition back to Nikumaroro, because now we know where to look. We want to look along that shoreline where the people in Funafuti, Told us they had seen airplane wreckage yeah. in the nineteen fifties because mm-hmm. we had we had aerial photography that says yeah there was a light colored metal on that reef wow. it was all coming together we finally knew where the airplane probably went into the water after being on the reef we knew where to look for wreckage so let's 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 get geared up and get Niku four going and then we got some new information that. Made it apparent that we needed to do another black expedition.
1: Really?
3: so Yeah. What?
2: The, the new information that's, oh my god, this is so good that we've got to check this out before we talk about it publicly.
1: And where was this black expedition to? Were you going, back, Rara, to going really? back to Nicaragua? Going back to Nicaragua. Yeah.
2: And now we thought. I think we know exactly where to look for the wreckage of that airplane. So we'll get into that in (laughs) season five of the ARN Expeditions, because there's a lot to talk about there.
1: Another pre-mission for Another
2: what turned out to be a preliminary mission, but uh, this was gonna be a a secret
1: mission. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, I'll be excited to hear about that. (laughs) We'll talk about it next time. Okay. Thank you, Rick.
0: Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.